You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Spaces between spaces and lines between lines. She stands in the doorway beyond space and time. His body should hit right about in here. I want it legitimate and different and better than it's ever been done. When I squeeze off a couple of shots at you, you take it, hit it, and hit it hard. I want balls when you die. All right, let's roll them. All right? Action. She picks the flowers out in the rain and, and she says she loves me and you know I can't complain. Four, six, Charlie, take three. White. Please, please. And the movies have bring here violence, and I don't like it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Hey, man, it's like great to be here, man. You know, it's like a real thrill, man. Also with us this week is Mr. Nick Dawson. I want this to be legitimate and different and better than it's ever been done. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we're looking at Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. Barely released by Universal Pictures in 1971, the film stars Hopper as Kansas, a man as middle American as his name. He's in Peru as a stuntman for a Western. When the cast and crew packs up and goes back to Hollywood, he stays behind where the natives form a sort of cargo cult around movie making, holding up Kansas as their god, savior, and as their sacrifice. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers big time on this episode, if I haven't already ruined it with that description. For years, this film was a little difficult to see, and what was out there was a very muddy VHS of the film. Uh, It's currently being re-released by Arbelos in a limited theatrical run, which is already bigger than the original release of the film, and with a Blu-ray release set for later 2018. So if you haven't seen the last movie yet, definitely check it out and come back after you're done we will still be here. So Ben, when was the first time you saw the last movie and what did you think? Trying to remember where I first heard about it because one of those films was for a long time was kind of whispered on the margin. They did read an article about El Topo or something and you'd see this, oh, and Dennis Hopper's the last movie, but that was it. 
And it was almost this like ghost of a film and with the title of the last movie, like when I was younger and reading about it, I was like, does it even exist? Is it just this mythical film that nobody actually made? They just pretended. And then I was working at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image about 10 years ago. It was the same year he passed away, Dennis Hopper passed away, and they had a Dennis Hopper exhibition um, that was a collection from his private uh, archives and private gallery and his own works and works from other people that he owned and films and the whole lot. It was this absolutely incredible exhibition, and I lived in it pretty much five days a week for six months working uh, the floor, and uh, they played the last movie in a double with American Dreamer, and was fortunate to see them both in 35mm at one of the best cinemas here in Melbourne, and was blown away by it. There, there, I don't remember there being a huge amount of walkouts, but there were a lot of people just sitting in their seats at the end, just kind of staring into space, trying to process what they'd just seen. And it's just like it's one of those golden memories for me. And I've I've not seen it since. Like I just hadn't been able to rustle up a copy of it. And then faint rumors, of course, that the restoration was coming. I was like, I'll hold out. I'll hold out because this film certainly worth seeing in in the best possible way that you can. How about you, Nick? Well, I'm very lucky in the just a couple of days ago, I think on Tuesday of last week, I, I saw the film on the big screen for the first time, the, the restored version. Of it. It, it's it's really something special. I a little bit like Ben, it, it kind of had this mythical status for me uh, growing up. I, I forget exactly where I first heard of it. It was, you know, maybe mentioned on like some Hopper documentary or on some like cult movie TV show that I was watching. But, it, you know, it similarly had this thing where like, I'd maybe seen like a, like a couple seconds here or there. And it was talked about as, as this sort of just uh, folly of a, of a movie that was destined never to be seen, or at least or not, not easily accessible for sure. And 15, maybe 20 years elapsed between like me first hearing of it and actually seeing it. I probably saw it, it again, a little bit like Ben, around the time that Hopper died. And even then it was like just, just like a, a rip from the VHS, I think, that it was like somebody sent to me because they were like, if you haven't seen this already, you have to see it. I don't know. I mean, the film is wild. It's it's um, there's a number of films of that period that just feel like incredibly ahead of their time. And, and I feel like that phrase is like super uh, overused. It sort of almost loses meaning in a way. But but Nick Ray's We Can't Go Home Again is, is a similar film for me in the sense that when you see it today, it still feels sort of super innovative and 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 challenging to watch and obviously there's 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 a a definite dialogue that exists between those two films as well yeah this was one of those movies where you just heard about it for a long time i can't remember what documentary i was watching where uh they were talking about this and the whole idea of this film crew packs up and the natives make these cameras out of bamboo and paper mache and all these things and then sacrifice this guy that was pretty much the only thing I knew about this. And that's a major part of the film, but there's a lot more to it. And so when I heard about that and heard about the the way that the natives were being portrayed and all these things, I kept thinking about the whole idea of uh, Apocalypse Now. And then that Dennis Hopper was part of both of these films. I was like, oh, okay, I wonder if one of them is speaking to the other, uh, this uh, whole idea that the, the God being sacrificed by the natives, and it was so difficult for such a long time. And then when the VHS started showing up, I was like, okay, well, this doesn't seem legit. And just the 
the cover art for the VHS also didn't ring true. So it felt very much like one of these somehow a copy escaped and it ended up in the quasi-public domain, like where nobody was just really actually going to sue about this. When I finally watched that version, I mean, it is really difficult to tell what the fuck is going on in that movie just because of the shitty quality of that VHS. So I am jealous of both of you guys that you managed to see this in better forms. I mean, I imagine that the 35 millimeter, though it's not the quote unquote restored version that we're seeing now, it had to have been better than what I ended up seeing. Yeah. But from what I remember, the print was pretty pristine. I'd say it's a bit barely been played since back in the its first heyday. <laughs> I understand that it did get that Hopper about 10 years afterwards, so like early 80s, that Hopper actually was able to get the film back from the studio and re-released it himself and actually had some uh, limited success with it in a second theatrical release. I also read that this movie played under the working title Chinchero at drive-ins, but I can't find anything to support that, that... You know, that the whole idea of it being released and then buried, you know, pulled almost as quick as it was released... That's the main story. That's what you read all the time. But then I just kind of read, oh, yeah, and it also played drive-ins under this title. I was like, well, I'm not sure if I necessarily buy that or not. So there's only a certain amount of stories that go along with this movie, and we'll probably be repeating a lot of those stories. But it's a fascinating tale, you know, and we'll we'll definitely talk about the the making of it as we go along here. I just wanted to reemphasize to the listening audience that – The movie before this, the movie that Dennis Hopper made before the last movie, was Easy Rider. And that movie was a huge, huge success. That was a super low-budget movie that went on to make millions and millions of dollars and just really shook up the industry. You know, we've talked on this program before about the importance of, like, 1968 and just, you know, where the world was at. But I mean, just looking at the movie industry of the 1960s into the 1970s, things were not going well for the movie business. And that's why, you know, I'm always revisiting the 1970s, especially the early 1970s on this program, because there were so many interesting things being done because people were willing to take chances that they weren't necessarily willing to take in the early 1960s that they were in the 19 early 1970s because of this whole idea of we need to find something to do <laughs> to uh, sate the audience because they're not happy. People aren't coming to the movies. People are staying home. They're watching television. So there was this whole idea of let's change things up, though that was not an easy process. And this was kind of a victim of that not easy process. There was still the old guard in Hollywood and things were already changing in Europe. And Hopper was very accepted in Europe. And Easy Rider was this major success. And really, he should have been given this golden ticket. And he kind of was, but then he had it ripped away from him right as soon as he was like kind of on this precipice. But at the same time, a lot of people were kind of gunning for him. Like, this is the guy that made Easy Rider. So the next movie, we're just going to come out in droves and attack this guy because he had all the success. So it's that kind of self-fulfilling sophomore slump. 
the word that comes to mind when I think of Easy Rider is phenomena. It changed the world. <laughs> it actually changed not just aspects of cinema, but it, it changed a lot of how people thought about cultures and how they processed all this information and what how the world functioned in relation to creating art and all sorts of crazy things, which Hopper was perhaps caught up in the storm, but he, previous to this, you know, he was good friends with Andy Warhol and was as a firm supporter of very unusual and unloved art that was still coming through at the time. And so he certainly knew how to spot a wave and get ahead of it, but the fallout from Easy Rider, because it, 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 a lot of positive elements came out of Easy Rider, but I can't really say that any one thing was specifically positive in my opinion because I think it did lead to uh, I think you know Nikki said that this film is ahead of its time but I, I kind of think of last movie more as a gravestone film uh, marking the end of a line that never happened this was a, brought about as a result of a deal with Universal who uh, basically said we want the youth market that we don't have here's a chunk of money off was a million dollars each that they gave to five different directors to do whatever they wanted and I was trying to find my notes were what the other three films were, but the first two films were bankrolled in this manner with complete creative control were Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie and Monty Hellman's Two Lane Blacktop. They are sampling a lot of that European new wave stuff that people talk about with the new Hollywood. But to me, the new Hollywood, what it promised to be, died with Two Lane Blacktop and The Last Movie. It's truly avant-garde, truly experimental, truly aggressive and dangerous filmmaking. That's the gravestone for it right there and then. And then we just seeked back into making faux classic Hollywood films with a bit of uh, fancy editing and camera work and a lot of nihilism. The five movies were, uh, as you said, the last movie, Two Lane Blacktop, Peter Fonda's The Hired Hand, Milos Forman's Taking Off, and Frank uh, and, and Perry's uh, Diary of a Mad Housewife. I kind of understand what you're saying about this being the, the tombstone. I, I, I think that, I mean, the reason that these five films got greenlit was basically because easy rider was this thing that hollywood didn't understand like it was a success but they didn't know why it was a success they knew this youth market was out there but they didn't know how to make films that actually were appealing to that you know it's like people didn't want to see paint your wagon you know they they mm-hmm. just didn't and the, the the audience that you know had been there for classic hollywood was basically dying out so uh, literally in some in some cases, like people were getting old. They weren't going to the movies anymore. They were watching, staying at home and watching TV. Part of the reason for this deal was, was a degree of desperation. And I think that the carte blanche that was given to people, these directors, was when they actually delivered those movies was scary. And th- there is this whole thing about Hopper being uh, sort of like the figurehead of this of this generation, of this group of filmmakers, like the, the people who are the messiah. And obviously, we're going to talk a lot about this whole messiah thing uh, in the context of the last movie. It's incredibly relevant. But I question a little bit, like, the extent to which people were actively wanting him to succeed. I Just having read a lot about Hopper, he was his own failure, sort of fear of failure, and his own belief that people were trying to make him fail was as much a, a part of what went wrong with the last movie than people's actual actions and, and people's actual uh, sort of will <clears throat> see, see the, you know, the sophomore slump take place. I think that he was like this super self-destructive and sort of insecure person. And I think just the fact that 
you know, when he was making this film, like there, there was a there was all these journalists that went out to to Peru to be on set to like document the, the making of this new masterpiece because they were invited by Universal just to make this film as mythic as as they thought it was going to be. And one of the the things that Hopper was saying on set was like, I want to prove that Easy Rider wasn't a fluke. You know, I mean, even if you take the, like the simple thing of you know Hopper winning best screenplay at the Academy Awards when it was like him and Terry Southern and Peter Fonda are credited, but I think realistically, most likely it was it was actually Terry Southern who who did the work. Terry Southern didn't write one word of Easy Rider. Not one of his ideas is incorporated in Easy Rider. Terry Southern broke his hip, was unavailable, and the only reason his name is on the screen is because Bert Schneider wanted his name on the screen. The title Easy Rider is Terry Southern's. Beyond that, Peter and I had talked out the whole screenplay. And uh, they were supposed to write it while I was off finding locations. I call and find out they haven't written anything. I get a secretary and I dictate the whole screenplay in 10 days and come out with a, not a great masterpiece. And then after that, 80% of the film is improvised. So that's the story. And then after that, unfortunately, Terry didn't have, didn't have a percentage of the movie. But when it became famous, then he started calling me and saying, I want a percentage. I want some money. I'm having problems financially. And then he convinced his son, which is really pathetic to me, his son that he had written it. And then on and on. And this has become a big, big thing. And it's been things printed in the New Yorker and all over the place. And it really hurts me. It's one of my really, really prized things that I've done. It has nothing to do with Terry Southern. Absolutely nothing except the title Easy Ride. So there, there, I think there is this like sense of of insecurity that's really profound that that manifests itself in in both that's kind of the themes of the film but also in the way that hopper handled the the inevitable conflict with the studio once he delivered his cut yeah he definitely um made plenty of enemies in his time but i think the i think you're right i think you're absolutely right that he's it's he's, you know you see this reasonably often we get these directors who just seem to be cursed but it's like when you actually look into it it's like yeah, they had some bad run-ins with some bad studio heads, but at the same time, they didn't help themselves at all. You know, someone like Terry Gilliam, who just constantly keeps getting around, putting his own foot up his ass, um, and Hopper definitely did that for a good long time. Um, but yeah, I think you're, I think you're, you're right that that it makes the film actually more interesting. And I, I tend to think that the last movie actually shows that Easy Rider was a fluke. That I think that they got lucky with Easy Rider, where it was just right place, right time, right bunch of weirdos. I think I think the last movie is a better film than Easy Rider, but it's not Zeitgeist film. Like they hit the Zeitgeist with Easy Rider. If he was trying to hit the Zeitgeist again, he was never going to. That's not many people get to do that, and especially not twice in a row with that many drugs in their system. <laughs> it really couldn't have necessarily been a Zeitgeist film because he had come up with the idea of this. He and and the screenwriter had worked on this for a long time and a long time before. And the, the story is, and this is one of these like, you know, print the legend kind of things. The story is that Hopper came up with this idea when he was working on the sons of Katie elder in 1965. And this whole idea of going to Mexico and there being a stunt man down there and a coordinator down there who had all of these things available to him and was like, okay, yep, yeah, come on in and I'll set you up with the horses, the guns, the, this, the, that, the locals, the here, the, there. And 
that's just one small part of what ended up being the last movie. And if you know, we've talked on the show so many times before about movies that have almost too many ideas. And I think that that's what the last movie suffers from at times is too many ideas. And then there's this whole thing too, of him taking so long to edit this movie. I think it took him, you know, estimates vary, but they say at least a year for him to edit this movie. He became too close to it. And then also the idea of the fractured timeline, I don't know if it necessarily helps this movie or not. It might actually hurt this movie in the long run, and we can we can debate about that as we go along. But I think that he got too close to it, and there are too many ideas, so it, things kind of fall through the cracks that shouldn't necessarily fall through the cracks. Yeah, reading the uh, the press book <laughs> with its attempt to describe the plot, the original press book, I, that was giving me a headache trying to read the plot description and reading it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, OK. I, I see that that is probably what was originally intended to be in there. But I feel like like trying to actually put a plot to this film does it no does does it a disservice. Uh, I think that it's it's better off just like not even, like it's one of those films you like as much as you do need to interpret and try and read and grasp some kind of understanding you also kind of need to just roll with it as it goes and imagine that you're just kind of wandering from one room to the next uh and just sort of soaking up less the narrative than just everything else and that's actually i think that's that is it's really interesting that Tulane Blacktop and Last Movie came out of the same kind of thing because I think they do have a lot of commonalities because I've always believed that Tulane Blacktop, that the main characters are the cars and that all of the narrative and the, the action and the meaning and themes and everything is a lot deeper and more nuanced in relation to the cars than it is to the people. And I think it's very deliberate to, to, to do that. And I think that this film does a lot of that as well, where it's sort of it's stripping out character, it's stripping out narrative, but it's doing it in such a chaotic, discordant way that again it comes back to that feeling of a gravestone, like like just Hopper sitting there leaning against his stack of the last movie and just being like hit the end and found nowhere else to go. And I think that the, the film's true power comes from that more than anything else. I completely agree. I, I think it is a film that is juggling so many ideas, and I think the ideas sort of take precedence over plot. It's funny, like Mike, you were saying before about the crappy uh, VHS transfer and all this kind of thing. Like, I, when I saw the film uh, this past week, it was strange because seeing it on the big screen, like, and in this, this really uh, beautiful uh, restored version, the plot felt so much more coherent to me, you know, because I was just like, from my memory, I was like, oh, there's no plot in this film. Like, you're just constantly being confused. And th- th- I think there are definitely sections of the film where you're like, oh, this is the, pl- this is the plot part. This is not just playing with imagery and, and, and like bombarding us with ideas or, or playing around with ideas. So it's a really messy film. And, you know, you, when you're talking about, about this prolonged editing period, the, the hilarious thing is the, the American Dreamer, the documentary that was made about the post-production process of the film actually came out before the film did. That's how long <laughs> post took, which is like completely absurd. Yeah, there's a great quote. Um, uh, Hopper said that uh, he compared editing to having a child and cutting its arms off, putting out its eyes. So you can just imagine that would have been torturous year for him. 
you wonder even like what he was seeing by the end because i certainly understand the being too close and not being able to see it at all but when you contemplate how many different kinds of substances he was putting into himself yeah so he married michelle phillips so the mamas and the papas in that period and the wedding was annulled a couple of days later so he's got all that going on i think i can't i'm just trying to remember is it in the american dreamer where he talks about meeting charles manson or trying to meet charles manson yeah it's a yeah, yeah. so yeah. he's got he's got that going on in the background as well Plus, bringing in Joel Dorowski, who just finished um, El Topo, brought him in to do a cut of it as well. So Hopper's head would have been a kaleidoscope <laughs> of interesting in that year. And I think, like, you need to kind of hold that yourself when you watch the film because it's like this is this the person telling you this story is seeing the world differently. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's definitely really very, very true. I mean, like they shot like 40 hours of footage in, in, in Peru. And like you said, when you consider all the stuff going on, the influence that he has, the, the, the stuff that he's putting in his system, the people he has around him. I mean, I feel like this is something where there, there, there's like almost an unlimited number of versions of the last movie that could have existed. And this was just like the one that they, they settled on. That, that was going to be released but i i think that what he shot was like so chaotic and everything about the film is chaotic and i actually think it's like given the circumstances it's like relatively coherent as a as a movie in the context i think for anybody else it's a total mess but it's a fact you know like it's it's utterly fascinating and anyway i i agree with you also that that it is a better movie than than easy rider although i one of the things i've been thinking about recently is just just thinking about the two in in comparison is that like the last movie is almost like this untouched thing just because nobody has seen it whereas easy rider was just like so fully assimilated into into uh popular culture that i really feel like i've never actually seen it as an audience would have done back then it's just this thing that has been copied so many times and and it feels so mainstream in a way now that it's tough to kind of view it objectively yeah, well, actually, when I worked in the uh, exhibition of his works, you know, it's a, it, obviously it's multimedia, so different rooms would be playing clips on loop. And so there'd be all these chunks of Easy Rider playing on loop in different parts of the gallery. So that just added to my – because I, when I worked in the exhibition, I hadn't actually seen Easy Rider. I think I saw that in the last movie about a week apart of each other. I can't remember which order. Um, but, yeah, just had all – and even today, like, uh, as I rewatched it, there was a couple of scenes where I'm like, oh, yeah, that was in room two, that was in room five. Like, as soon as the first frame came up and I heard the sound, it was immediate, like, that's ground into my body from six months of working in the exhibition. It's actually a really – skillful ability he has because i i recently watched um out of the blue his follow-up to last movie some nine years afterwards ten years afterwards um and i didn't realize that he took over that project when the previous director and co-writer fell through but uh, i didn't realize because it so feels cohesive with his other works and perhaps a darker more punk version of his hippie uh nihilism but out of the blue has that same kind of loose cohesion where it's sort of flipping backs and forwards. That's a little bit, uh, a fair bit more narrative driven, but it just does still like just give up on the plot to disappear into the subculture of these punks and the living on the streets and the, the abuse and violence of American family life. And I think he, he's, he's definitely that fractured brain skill that he's been working on for all of his life with all the chemicals does give him a really skillful orchestration when it comes to telling a story that 
doesn't want to point in one direction. I think about his first three films, uh, Easy Rider, uh, Last Movie and Out of the Blue, as sort of like they're very much a set because Out of the Blue, I think they shot maybe two weeks or even like a month of that movie. And then the director got fired and, and Hopper was basically like, asked to take on the film and he he was like rewriting it as they were making it he threw out a bunch of the of the of the script and and what they previously shot and um and there was this chaotic thing and i think that's like the energy of of his films is chaos and there's like this spontaneity and and this sort of manic quality to them that makes them really fascinating and you don't see that in his later work in, in maybe like colors or you know, like the, the the sort of genuinely minor films that he was making in the in the late eighties, uh, early nineties. Although I, I think I mentioned this to you on email, Mike. But like, I have this great soft spot for his much ignored movie Backtrack or Catch Fire, as it's also known. So like, which is a real curiosity. But let's not get go down that rabbit hole. But <laughs> but yeah, I I think that once he cleaned up and sort of from like you know, nineteen eighty six was this like pivotal year for him when like he did blue velvet and 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 he had like that was you know a a number of other films that were like mainstream and successful and once he came back to hollywood as a director after those successes he played by the rules and he like stuck to budgets and and he wasn't this wild man and the films in my opinion are just a lot less interesting as a result we mentioned how Universal backed these five different filmmakers and films. And the one that is interesting to me is that they backed The Hired Hand at the same time. And The Hired Hand is a Western. El Topo, which we mentioned coming out in 1970, is it's a Western. I mean, it, it plays with Western tropes. And that's the thing with all of these movies is they're all playing with Western tropes. And there's nothing in the world that's more, quote-unquote, American than a Western that we just talked a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Yojimbo and we've talked about other, you know, spaghetti Westerns and the way that the Western was played with in the rest of the world and kind of being fed back to us. And this is, you know, our own homegrown Dennis Hopper playing with that Western as well. And you can even say that, that a lot of Easy Rider also plays with Westerns. And the, the interesting thing about Hopper is that he was part of old Hollywood as well as part of new Hollywood. You know, he wasn't some, you know, Hollywood brat coming in. He wasn't a former film critic who, you know, kind of moved his way into this. He was, you know, he was married to Hollywood royalty. He was working with Hollywood royalty and he, he crosses that line between old and new. So to have, you know, some of the people that he has in the last movie to be working with the, some of the people behind the scenes, you know, he knows his stuff and he's able to play with those things as he moves along, which it, it makes this even more fascinating to me is that he comes from this past and picks a genre that he can manipulate like this just because it, it speaks to old Hollywood and classic Hollywood as well as what he wants to do with it and is able to subvert the genre as he moves along. I mean, it's no coincidence that. You know, it was Captain America and Billy, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, in Easy Rider, and here we are having the death of Billy the Kid be the movie within the movie that we see towards the beginning of the last movie. And, of course, his name is Kansas, and Dennis Hopper was born in Kansas. 
There's lots of things like that. I think of Hopper, especially in relation to these earlier films, as a radical genre remixer, which has become, a, you know, a little bit blasé these days. There's a lot more, a lot more common uh, occurrences of that. But I think that even, even more, it stands out even more than contemporary people who tend to remix with genre. And I think it's because. Yeah, like you said, he was he was definitely part of the old school of Hollywood. Like he'd been there, he'd done the hard yards, worked in Lee Strasberg and all that. But at the same time, like he kept getting thrown out of Hollywood. <laughs> he kept getting thrown out of, of pissing off the wrong people and getting shoved off. And every time that would happen, he would retreat into his art and into his photography and painting and collecting. And that's one of the things that makes him different, that makes him the iconoclast that can make something like Easy Rider, is that I think he has the heart of an artist, um, that he's able to see the world the way that an artist sees it. And I really, when I say artist, I mean like a photography and paintings, that that he has this ability to, he understands narrative in still images, not necessarily still images, but in fixed images, in a way that most don't. And that's, I think, where something like Last Movie and Easy Rider works really well, that he's able to sort of self-contain these little narratives in just a single image that keeps the film elevated and stops it from emptying out. But he's also got the soul of a bastard by all accounts. Even when he like cleaned up, he was still a bit of a bastard. Um, I One of my favourite stories is the the possibly true story about John Wayne chasing him through the back lot with a shotgun because he said something about John Wayne's daughter. And I think that this is a really the, the heart of Hopper's interesting dichotomy is that he is a, a very emotional, in touch uh, human being who's very concerned with the world and with people and where we're going. But at the same time, he's also a psychotic bastard who would probably crawl over you for the next drink. And this comes out so interestingly in his films where there's just, that gives them a real reality and texture, which I think that's why he hit the youth market because it felt honest, felt real. It didn't feel like he was trying to get them or not. He felt like somebody who was just as pissed off at all the shit as they were. One of the criticisms of the movie is that they changed, you know, in the script, it's text. It's not Kansas, it's text. And they were talking for a while of having Ben Johnson play that role. And Ben Johnson, who, ironically enough, was in The Last Picture Show in 1971, as opposed to The Last Movie in 1971, he would have brought something so different to that role as far as the even just the age you know not just the attitude the drawl those kind of things but the age as well and it would have changed it as far as is this the aging stuntman who has seen it all and decides to quit the business and start up this new business in peru where he can be there for when Hollywood crews come back down and and bets the whole farm on this idea of being this you know go to person for the Hollywood community, versus Dennis Hopper who is playing it very young and he was very young at this point and he is at more the beginning of his career and he doesn't seem like he's a very seasoned stuntman at all. At one point he says like oh I've never been jerked off of a horse before. And, you know, he, he, which is a funny line, but, um, he doesn't seem to have the wherewithal and he seems to be more of an observer on this set. I mean, he's done enough to set up his truck with, you know, Kansas from California. And I can't remember that he's got a great, um, line as far as like, you know, uh, uh, broken bones, but raring to go, you know, so, <laughs> 
which which is also very tough to see on the VHS version. So uh, hopefully it's easier to see on the uh, the new version of it. It really paints it into a different light, and then it also adds an extra layer of complexness to it. Having our star, our writer, our director be Kansas as well, and that's another thing that people held up like, oh, he's playing this Jesus role, and Dennis Hopper thinks he's Jesus Christ. Might be true, might not be true, but it, it paints it in a Or Charlie light. Manson. Yeah, or Charlie Manson. <laughs> or he thinks he's Charlie Manson. <laughs> I think there's like three really big figures in, in Hopper's consciousness at this time. Like One is, as Ben said, is, is Manson, and that's like really kind of very apparent in The American Dreamer, which I think we'll probably talk about more, the, the, the role that that plays. And then Orson Welles is another one who's kind of like, you know, at that time and really still today, like the maker of the greatest movie ever, but also this like pariah, this person who started at the top and then, and then has sort of like had this ignominious descent afterwards from like ever, ever di- diminishing returns. Uh, and then Jesus, of course. And I think that like he was like the messiah of of New Hollywood. Like he was the guy who who could could take the studio heads to the promised land and and. I think he carries all that weight of expectation with him. And, and you know, you, when you see him at the start of the movie, he is this sort of like burdened figure, uh, confused. And like, it's, it's like him in, in, in the wilderness. And there's a great story about Hopper on, on the last movie. He was born in 1936 and he turned 34 during the production of the movie. And, and people said that he was slightly disappointed that he made it to 34 because it meant he wasn't Jesus. Yeah, that sounds like Hopper. The movie is just so awash with religious iconography. So many scenes take place at a church. A priest is one of our major figures. And then we have the idea of worship and ceremony. So there are religious overtones throughout this entire film. And yeah, the idea of having a martyr and making Kansas that martyr uh, is one of the biggest things. I mean, we open up with this uh, parade going on, and we see that's where we're introduced to the camera kind of figure. Um, it's not a real camera being trotted out through this, but it's right there, like behind. It's like Jesus in the parade, and then there's the camera. You know, it's like that they're almost equal weight to whatever is going on here. And then to your point, Nick, we see Hopper. uh, I think he's wearing a poncho at this point and he's really disheveled. And we don't realize necessarily that this is from later on in the film and we'll get there eventually. But we start off with this to see kind of the depths of where our character is going to go. And then we also get to see the director character i should say who is this guy mercado and he's wearing this um uh, i guess it's a like a, a a rebel hat with these crossed guns on it and we'll see later on that it's the exact same hat that sam fuller who is our director of the death of billy the kid is wearing and i didn't necessarily make the connection that mercado as this director character is the same person that we see when Billy the Kid gets shot in the movie within the movie, who thinks that the actor was actually shot and they have to hold him back from ruining the scene because he thinks that the actor has died. And then when the actor, quote unquote, comes back to life, 
then it's like, oh, a miracle has happened. So it took me a little while before I actually made that connection that this character was the same as who ends up being the director. The person who witnessed the miracle is there. And the, I believe it's is it's Dean Stockwell playing the Billy the Kid character in this? Yeah, it is. Yep. Okay. And there's a line later on where they talk about doing something like Dean – and I didn't realize that they're talking about Dean Stockwell. I thought he was actually talking about James Dean because we know that Dennis Hopper was just obsessed with James Dean. And he would talk about Dean and the importance uh, of him in his life until the day that Dennis Hopper died. This is something I, I picked up more on, on in the recent uh, – when I, the recent screening of the film that I saw. But yeah, there's this – when they talk about Dean, there, there's, a, there's this thing in, in the film which I think is sort of underplayed somewhat. Uh, where there's a there's a stuntman who's died, who I believe is the Dean character, and he has this guilt around the Dean's death, he, uh, which you see sort of replayed in a couple times. Uh, I think he's like falling from a, a roof or something like that, and it, it's part of this at the, at the time uh, that they were making the film. Hopper was wearing James Dean's ring. Uh, you know, obviously he like uh, apparently he also held the memorial to James Dean in Chinchera when. And they were shooting the film and uh, you know hopper you know was very very close to dean when he was in in both giant and rebel without a cause and you know he sort of had this survivor's guilt thing of like he was like the lesser artist he was the lesser actor he was the lesser you know like i think dean was maybe even a better photographer than hopper was apparently he was a, at least in, in hopper's eyes he was an amazing photographer as well he has this guilt about the person who died who he wasn't able to help and it's very pain it feels very genuine in the film yeah and it's, it's interesting also because um montgomery clift was meant to play the lead part when he was originally conceiving it and of course montgomery clift is just as if not more tragic uh career in hollywood that is an interesting facet as well yes the, the i love the film because it does not rest on its metatextual elements but you could go to town with the metatextual elements of this film. I mean, I, I couldn't help but, you know, seeing Thomas Millian, he essentially played Charles Manson in Fulci's uh, Four of the Apocalypse. Like he has stated that he based the, his character on that on Manson. So you've got, you know, he, a couple of years later, I think that was 74, uh, 72, 73, he, uh, he would play Manson and here he is playing a priest, one who seems a bit conflicted about where his loyalties lie doesn't somebody will write a book on this film one day so we go from that opening that just kind of drops us into there into another opening which is the idea of this movie being shot and that's also in media res we're also joining this in progress and he he managed to get all of these people to be in this movie within the movie and we don't necessarily see them that well, at least in the version that I saw. And I think part of that is because we are very distant from the way that they're shooting this. You know, we see a lot of shots of them shooting. You know, we're never, we're not often in front of the camera. You know, we are very often behind the camera seeing the actual shot going on. So we're breaking that illusion all of the time. We're, we're not ever invested in the movie within the movie there are times where i would like to be and i would like to see what the plot of this thing is and see sam fuller directing but that's just 
not the case. And again, it's nice that they have Sam Fuller in here, who is this kind of rebel character who's kind of the, the Dennis Hopper before Dennis Hopper was Dennis Hopper. I don't know if that was Fuller's choice or not, but he was also kind of an outcast, you know, kind of like labeled as B-movie director and not given the bigger projects, even though he had the talent and the guts and all of these things. And he would be held up by the subculture so much throughout the years you know you'd see him and you know working with Jim Jarmusch and with uh Vim Vendors and all of these characters uh I mean even showed up in a Godard movie if memory serves well a film is uh, like a battleground it's like a battle as love l'amour hate la haine action l'action violence the violence, death, and la mort. One word, emotions. On a seul mot, c'est l'émotion. Apparently, Hopper wanted uh, Henry Hathaway to play that role because of this long history that he had with Hathaway. He worked with him at least three times and in three very different ways. Hathaway gives me every line reading, every gesture, and it's a nightmare. The last day of the film, I come in. And Hathaway says, do you know what these are? And I said, yeah, those are film cans. He said, yeah. He said, there's stacks of film cans. I got enough film here to shoot for four and a half months. You're going to do this scene the way I tell you to. You've gotten by with a lot of crap so far, but this scene is the last scene you have in the picture. You're going to do it my way. And I have sleeping bags. We will stay here. We'll stay here for four and a half months, and then I'll send for more film because I own, I own 40% of this studio. Now, I was doing this scene over and over, over and over, my way. He would, and then we'd just do it again, do it again. Do it. And about 3 o'clock, Jack Warner called and said, What the fuck are you doing? Get your ass back over here before Hathaway owns Warner Brothers. At 11 o'clock that night, I finally cracked and said, Okay. I started crying. I said, Okay, I've had, just tell me what you want me to do. And he told me, and I did the thing, and I walked out of the sound stage, and that was it. I didn't work in films for the next eight years. So he, again, had that experience, that old Hollywood experience, worked with the bastards and was, you know, and kind of wanted to pay tribute to Hathaway by having him in this role. I think it's actually better to have Fuller in there. And especially this idea of the rumor, the story always goes on that Fuller would shoot a gun in the air in order to like create tension or get attention or, or start a scene. And here he is actually, you know, shooting at Billy, the kid and, you know, like, okay, now you're going to do it here. And I'm, you know, and he shoots at him and then it's like part of the scene going on. So it's a nice nod to him uh, for that. Yeah. And it, it, you know, Fuller is kind of the, He's like the man's man director. He's like the, the, the genuinely macho, gritty um, director that, that I think Hopper wanted to be in a way. And I think that, as you say, that does work really, really well in the film because the Mercado character also fires a gun into the air when he's starting to call action. But of course, for him, like the violence is so much more charged. So that, that, that works really, really well, sort of playing with sort of the mythology around Fuller as a real person but injecting that into the film in a way that has so much more menace. One of the things that works really well in this movie, and it's almost one of those movies where you should just sit down and listen to it with headphones, the sound design and the sound effects and the sound effects during this Billy, the kid section, they are like the most 
typical Western sound effects, the the most typical Hollywood library sound effects that you're going to get. The sound of the bodies dropping, the sound of the gunshots, the sound of the horses, all of these things you have heard a thousand times before. So if you're actually like sitting there paying attention to that stuff, you're just going to hear these sounds so often. And then sounds will come up majorly in the second half of the film when we get all of these different sounds coming together and forming this almost noise track. And again, they're these really familiar library sounds that we've heard so many times before, but then now they are being used in different ways. So it's nice to listen to that. And then the sound design one of the most remarkable sequences in this film is the sound and the image that goes on in between the shooting. And I don't remember if this is in between the shooting and the if this is the rap party or what this is, but there's a party that happens pretty early on in the film. And we get this idea of, the, again, the camera is outside of the room. And we see Hopper inside, and he moves from room to room to room, finally comes outside, and then walks across. And we get not only the people inside that we get to see in these different groups, but these different groups are represented, again, by sound and by different music. And we kind of have this um, uh, cultural, the, this generation gap between the room where we have uh, the older people, the room where we have the hippies, the room they're outside of that where we have the actual natives. And it really points to the divides between these generations, these groups of people throughout the movie. And that's played off by both visuals and then also especially by the sound mix. And that's nice. It's all one long take. And then we get Hopper coming outside and crying and it's probably one of the most breathtaking sequences in the film. The more social scenes with that in the party, and then later when they hook up with the uh, the broom factory owner, <laughs> it's just, I love that it's a broom factory. I was like, that's if that was meant to be as a metaphor, then it's a pretty great metaphor. But also, like, calm down, Hopper, calm down. Um, <laughs> that was definitely two a.m. at God knows what you came up with that one. But that a lot of those sections remind me a bit of the works of uh, Dusan Makaveev as well, um, and Sweet Movie, that kind of aggressive kind of reflexive attack on American social behaviors or, you know, capitalism or stuff like that. It's just another one of those weird echoes that I get in the film. And we get a lot of sequences of Kansas on his horse. And that's where we get a lot of uh, Chris Christopherson on the soundtrack and these very pastoral sequences of Kansas riding on his horse. And it's really nice because we get, Christopherson on the soundtrack, and we have Kansas riding, and then we get another sequence of that shortly thereafter. And with that one, it again kind of breaks our expectation by actually showing Chris Christopherson and like, hey, Kansas, we're looking for you on set or whatever. And it's just like, whoa, okay, all of a sudden now we have the singer, like we go from this music being non-diegetic to diegetic because now here's Chris Christopherson on frame. And again, it's one of those things that's playing with our expectations. We see Chris Christopherson in this and we're like, oh, well, he's going to be part of this movie, but that's about it. You know, <laughs> we, we don't get a whole lot more. You know, it's like, oh, I see, you know, like when you look at the cast list for this movie, sorry, I'm kind of backtracking, but you look at the cast list and you're just like, oh, here's P. 
Peter Fon and Severin Darden and, and Dean Stockwell and Russ Tamblin and just this huge list of names. And you're just like, my God, this movie's going to be so great. And it's got all of these young stars who I love so much. And then you barely see them. And it's this nice kind of way of Hopper just like flipping you the bird. Like, oh, you expect to see those guys? No, you're not going to see them at all. Instead, you're going to see so many people that you don't necessarily know. And yeah, even better than that, in the lower resolution qualities, pretty much everybody looks like either Peter Fonda or Dean Stockwell in the <laughs> background. They just all blur together as like slightly mutton chops, uh, slightly beardy white men. <laughs> but I, I did the, the story that I heard a long time ago. I can't remember since the, all the, the random bits and pieces of Hopper stories. Well, the story was that uh, one of the reasons why they picked Peru was that it was uh, renowned at the time for its especially high quality and low cost uh, opioids or opiates. That the reason why there are so many big names in it for like one scene is because they would just be like, oh, yeah, we're going down to Peru for the weekend to hang out with Hopper and be in the film, a.k.a. snort a shit ton of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely a lot of mythology around this film. That the, the production basically was broken up into two sections, and like the first section was called the Freak Show, uh, or, or the people there were called the Freak Show, I should say, uh, which was like you know when Peter Fonda and Severin Darden and like John Buck Wilkin and like the whole gang, you know, Russ Tamblin through to Sylvia Miles and 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 so basically the the, the kids, the kids, the cool kids, they just raised hell i mean they, they started off like apparently on the way down um like they they got like a couple of the stewardesses on the flight to to sort of like join them partying like and so they were tripping with them and and the stories about like actors getting lost in the mountains for like three days it was apparently one actress who was like i have to assume there were a massive amount of of substances being consumed at this time but like she was essentially treated like joan of arc and somebody lit a fire underneath her there was like a mutiny among the stuntmen like you know it was like this chaos i was talking about before that hopper created i think he he uh identified in peru the, the potential for incredible chaos you know find somebody remote where you know there's no censorship and drugs are basically either illegal or incredibly easy to get anyway and um just see what happened when everybody left and and you get to the, sort of what is the chronologically the second part of the film even though everything is jumbled up where it's just it's just kansas and the the the, the natives in in chinchero i think hopper was a lot more focused then understandably uh but there was still definitely a, a literal and figurative hangover from what had transpired in those first couple of weeks of production that maybe clouded the the clarity of of the vision of the film, but in a way that I think still adds to what the film is. Yeah, and no, also uh, Chris, while we're still just up talking about Chris Christopherson, apparently this film put him off going seriously into acting for a number of years because <laughs> it scared the crap out of him so much being on the set with everything that was going on. Um, but I've, I've got to say, I, I don't think I've ever seen Chris Christopherson uh, clean shaven, and you see him clean shaven quite young in this. And I was like, "Holy shit! It's the love child of Michael Madsen and Matt Smith." It was very strange. Something I've been trying to sort of get my head around is how, because I've been quite interested in anthropology in cinema, 
and uh, how sort of natives, tribal traditions, rituals, etc., are portrayed. And I feel like I'd known the the press kit. It's like it's it's actually it's kind of gross <laughs> in the press kit that it opens by saying something like that this film is about innocence. Um, and it's about like the innocence of the natives corrupted by the influence of the film studio coming in. And, and I like, I, uh, yeah, I get it. It's, that's fine. It's really boring. It's really condescending. And I think the film is far more interesting than that. Um, because I don't, I, I think that, I think it's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. The last movie is an allegory concerning the destruction of innocence. The naive dreams involved are the agents of death when sophisticated games become more absurd than the mind can tolerate. And then morality can be born again. That's the opening paragraph of the last movie synopsis from the press kit. I understand that that was definitely something that was a lot at the forefront of especially Western cinema with this sort of, you know, the, the, the noble savage and all this kind of stuff. And the film doesn't quite dig into that. Thank goodness. I, I find it really interesting how the locals take on the filmmaking process. Um, and I, I tend to, I think that reading it, as a way of like of the corrupting influence of outsiders and their lack of understanding is really um, denigrating and doesn't actually give the film as as deep and resonant a reading as is possible because I, I when I look at these local people wandering around they've built this camera out of uh, bits of wood and they've built lights uh, attached you know fireworks to and there's everything's made out of wood and nothing's actually mechanical and nothing's being recorded but Something else I've always been very interested in is post-humanism and how we, uh, you know, dehumanize ourselves by extending what makes us human into objects around us. And so, you know, in cinema is like we take our dreams and we also take our memories and we put them into this external object that then becomes an extension of what makes us human. And so I'm when looking at that, it's like the tribe is actually – uh, rehumanizing the filmmaking process because they're stripping out the mechanization. They're stripping out all those things that make it mechanical and inhuman. And instead, the creation of the film is taken back into themselves through their creative imaginations and also through their organic memory. It's stripping cinema and Hollywood back to its ritualistic and symbolic function. I don't think that he's getting to any point in the film, but I think that I, I don't think that he was necessarily wishing to intend that. But I think that that actually is, um, it offers a lot more interesting interpretations. What you said is true that like definitely the, the what that, that nonsense from the, from the press book is, is like, some Hollywood PR person talking and it wasn't, that wasn't Hopper's yeah. vision of the film. It's, it's, I, it's a Hollywood PR person with his finger on the panic button going, how do we make sense of this? Completely, <laughs> completely. And you know, that, that it sounds like somebody trying to sell this as art rather than, because, yeah. because the real thing is too complex. But I think the, the stuff, I mean, it's, it's really interesting what, what happened because when Hopper was working on the sons of Katie Elder, you know, he was thinking about the impact of, uh, a film production uh, coming into this remote place and imposing itself, giving them this taste of, an, of, of like a different kind of existence and, and the influence of Hollywood and all this kind of thing. And the, the problem of that, but of course the irony is that in, in telling the story of the problems, he had to create those problems himself in Chinchero. And, and, you know, he, 
when he was on set, he talked about like how there were people there who thought they were going to get rich, uh, how they, they, they were like the, the film was going to change their lives forever and, and like money was going to flow in and all this kind of thing. And he said, like, we're using them. But the point you made, I think, is like really interesting and and, and true that, that what ended up on the screen is is really complex and maybe more interesting than he had realized that it was going to be. I'm reading further through the press kit because it's an interesting press kit because you do feel that tension between them trying to salvage something but also trying to sell something. There's an interesting little point about his early years that, again, ties back into what I was thinking about with the, the natives using the equipment and what you said about that, that the, the influence that comes in. And in, the, in the bio on Hopper, it says um, – that he grew up on a farm in a rural community and that the one exciting event was the train that came whistling through on the edge of the farm, watching it snake through and disappear into the distance. He pondered on it. Where had it come from? Where did it go? His imagination, which had fed itself on birds, animals, trees, and fragments of adult conversation, kindled when his grandmother, eggs in her apron for selling, walked with him to the nearest town and took him to his first movie. There's a similar kind of aspect there that you maybe you can imagine that the quiet farm boy might have always been happy being a quiet farm boy if this huge mechanical creation hadn't barreled past the farm showing that there was something where it came from and something where it was going. And like that in a way, you know, possibly subsumed into his psyche and comes out later with the the, the film crew barreling through like a train and leaving traces of what this dreams are possible. Um, Cause yeah. there's that also another really interesting quote from him um, that he, that Hopper said that it was uh, more than the story of my life up till now. It's the daydreams, the night flights past the tombstones, tombstones. I pretend not to see. I think that, that there's something there in that, that it's, I think it's, it is also maybe a sense of, of that he, that in, in, if it is at all about some innocence and sense of loss, it's not for the natives or anybody else. It's a hundred percent for Hopper's character of that he's chased this train trying to get somewhere. And yeah, this is where he's ended up. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the story about the grandmother and the eggs is actually told by Kansas in, in the film. And there, there, there is this element of, of the Kansas character being Hopper, but obviously not Hopper. And I like that idea that the, the, the innocence lost is his. There's, I have to say, there's another story that comes to mind of like Hopper as a, as a young farm boy, which is that he used to lie on top of his father or grandfather's tractor and like inhale the, the, the gas, like the fumes from the gas tank until he, he like saw, uh, you know, basically he, until he passed out, like seeing amazing, uh, visions of, uh, whatever. <laughs> but so like, I, I think he was maybe a little less innocent than, <laughs> it's, it's not it's, you know it, let, let's not make this simplistic is, is what i'm saying i think he he had this uh tendency to like poeticize and mythologize and dare i say bullshit a lot and you know that's yeah. a, the the bullshitter side of things is like really so present in in the american dreamer when you just like you put a camera on him and and like in most cases really nothing is happening happening and he just talks and you're just like well, what he like you know it's it's like, what do people do when nothing is happening? So, you know, you see that, mm. that version of Hopper, but I, I think, um, yeah, he's, he had a, he had a great tendency to, to try and be certain people. Like when he was growing up, 
his understanding of like what a great actor was was based on uh, like John Barrymore and and to a lesser extent like Errol Flynn. And so he was like, okay, so to be an actor, you have to like drink a lot and and kind of be be a bastard. Be a bastard, yeah. <laughs> And and so and then he kind of played that role uh, very effectively in his in his real life, and I'm not sure if he ever kind of got to this place where he was comfortable enough really to to be himself. There's a story that he told which I came across when I was reading some stuff, which is from a New Yorker article around the time that the last movie came out. There's an element in the film where like the church is called the Church of Didymus Judas Thomas and Hopper was obsessed with the uh, the Gnostic gospel of Thomas, which was discovered in, in the 20th century. Uh, and this is this apocryphal gospel. And, you know, it was like he, he was like, I don't read books, but this is the book that I read. But rather than just like saying that somebody gave it to him, he was like, you know, the night that Peter and Fonda and I were were uh, came up with the idea for Easy Easy Rider. We were out. um you know, with friends, and then we, we we bumped into James Baldwin at a bar talking about Black Power, and then we went to somebody's house, and they had this like ancient uh, triptych from a Flemish master that looked like a fake, but the woman said it was real. And then we went to a church, and it was locked. And then a prostitute gave me a copy of the Gospel according to Thomas. And it's like nothing can be simple; like everything has came <laughs> on like these great these great sort of like washing poetic uh, narratives that you're just like. You know, he's saying it so fast so that you can't question it, but it's it's really about the presentation of himself as a legitimate, deep feeling human being. Where you know he was, it, it all felt like a sort of protecting what he actually felt, which maybe didn't feel legitimate to him. And it's it's that insecurity I was talking about before. Mm, yeah, and it's interesting that on the the church during the the shootout within the film. Uh, that written on the the sign out the front is uh, show me the stones the builders have rejected for they are the cornerstones. That's from the the gospel according to Saint Thomas and and you know he there you go. this is why he he was so into it because he was like I am the stone that has been rejected and so like I am the cornerstone of this new of this new generation of this new artistic movement. Except I don't yeah. think he really believed it himself. And he also used some of that uh, gospel as well with the grave scene in Easy Rider. And then we've got a grave scene in here where, and I guess it makes a lot more sense now that you're saying that one of the stuntmen died. And I did not pick up on that at all as far as the movie within the movie that a stuntman died. When we're at the cemetery, we're getting these flashbacks of a stunt. So I'm like, oh, okay, now that makes more sense because we're going to get that in super slow-mo a few times throughout this film. So now I, I'm kind of putting the pieces together. I feel bad because I just got a, a kind of a, a positive yet negative review on iTunes where they were saying how dense I am sometimes. And I'm just like, oh, okay, well, great. Uh, apparently I'm, I'm proving people right. Every time somebody asked me about this film, what I, what is it, what is it? I was like, it's it's dense. It's it's a dense film about dense film. That's what it is. It's very <laughs> very dense. There's a lot going on here. It cracks me up that the title card doesn't come up until about 25 minutes into the movie. When the title card came up last night, I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What what time was this again? Let me check this. <laughs> because I always love with Raising Arizona that there's so much preamble until the title card actually shows up. And I think that's 20 minutes. And with this, it's 25 minutes. Here we go. The last movie. And it's like, oh, 
All right. That that's uh it seems like the past is preamble and now here we go from here on in. This is the rest of the movie and it really kind of starts, quote unquote, once the the Hollywood people leave and then we're back into now this is really what the last movie is. I found um a quote from Thomas Celsa talking about the new Hollywood period and it, it felt like it fit this very well. And he just said that the, the new Hollywood period is uh, quite often displays a kind of malaise uh, already frequently alluded to in relation to the European cinema, the fading confidence in being able to tell a story. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's definitely present here. It's like, yeah, like you said that there's that a hopper on the one hand has all this bluster and power and everything. But at the same time, yeah, there's that you can feel the fading confidence in the film. Who is the body that is tied across that car, like a dead deer that Hopper sees that Kansas sees and really puts him aback? Maybe it's Dean. I, I, I mean, the, the, the point that I took from that moment in the movie was this thing that we were talking about before about sort of like, the dehumanization that takes place when the film production arrives in town and just like the fact that, you know, the, the, the footage in the, in the fuller movie, if you like, is just like people killing each other right, left and center. It's a little bland in a way. I mean, I, I think it's intentionally made to sort of be this like not particularly good Western, but uh, the fact that I didn't know exactly who it was, didn't feel important to me. Like Stella Garcia's reaction to that was just, to me, it was like really, significant she's just like i I don't know it's like he's like you're eating he's like "Ah, i didn't know that guy you know it's just like we 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 turn off our emotions because we don't know that person and and i i felt like that was the whether or not i was missing an important plot point that that was very much a a point that i think they're trying to make in that moment every single thing i have ever read about this film says that the main thing around which the film revolves is this death of the play a guy playing Billy the Kid being Dean. I've seen it, the film, a couple of times now, and, yeah, I'm still – every time I get to the end of the film, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, somebody who was meant to have died in here. <laughs> that death, that incident occurs in, like, a locked room. It's almost like the, the, the trauma of it is too much for the film to cope with. And so instead you're just left with all this, you know, alienation and anarchy and absurdism instead. And so the, the film is very much a absurdist narrative of the kind of the absurdity of trying to <laughs> uh, navigate and narrate uh, your life story. It's interesting the way that they introduce very important characters, but they take their time to do it. You know, like it isn't until I believe after the movie crew leaves that we're finally introduced to Thomas Millian, who plays the priest of the town. It's an odd thing. You know, it's this whole idea again of someone coming in and forcing things onto people. I mean, obviously the uh, Incans were not. Uh, Catholics or Christians, and so we have this figure of the church, and the church looms large over everything in uh, in this area. You know, the church is the most ornate building that we have, and this whole idea of uh, bringing in the religion and forcing it upon the native people is always an interesting one. I don't know if they're necessarily going for that with this, but I think they are because of all of the religious iconography. You just talked about the sign over the church door and that Hopper sees himself as one of the cornerstones of the church. 
I think religion is a major theme to this, and Million is a pretty important character to the movie, the way that he is trying to stop people. I mean, it's almost like they're giving him a run for his money. You know, they, they're suddenly changing from being these good Christians to shooting this fake movie, and he comes to Hopper like, oh, you need to tell them, you need to stop them from doing this. And Hopper, ironically, says, I'm just a hired hand, which I don't know if it was a reference to the Fonda movie or not, but he's just like, I'm just a hired hand. And then he goes out and tries to teach the natives that this is all fakery in front of the camera, which apparently comes from a story that Hopper would tell about his meeting Elvis Presley, that Elvis came to him before he started doing movies. And he was like, I don't know if I'll be able to do this. I've never hit a woman before. I don't think I can hit a woman. And then Hopper finally realized, oh, he thinks that this is all real violence and then showed him how to do like stage combat and, you know, violence for the the camera. And he says that Elvis got really mad that he had been tricked for all these years, that he couldn't believe that when people were being punched on movies that they weren't actually being punched. I don't put a lot of stock into that, but it's another one of those Hopper bullshit stories that makes for a good story. Right. You know, it's it's not necessarily something that you want to say like, yeah. And then Elvis must have thought that when people were shot, they were actually dying. You know, it's like, <laughs> come on, come on, Dennis, let's take this one step further. The line that he says to the native director is, uh, we don't do that in movies. We fake everything. It's all funny. And I feel like that even that is feeds into that uh, sort of what's going on with the natives that it's like, wait, so you make death funny. You make death unreal. You make it's like it's that same thing where you're you're stripping away the symbolic meaning of something by making it fake, which again is like the very Western capitalistic kind of endeavor of flattening everything out and making everything the same and meaningless. I wonder with the Thomas Millian, the priest, I wonder how that would have played when it, if it would have been made in Mexico, because I think you've got things with a lot more of a complicated negative collision of cultures there where you've got things such as like um uh what is it like the the satanic version of catholicism that developed out of mexico um which you know all the the drug runners love um but you get that yeah that the, the, the catholic church brings religion to mexico and it gets mashed up with their own local versions and comes out as these twisted dark versions that are not what was intended by the church at all which it doesn't come across so much in Peru, but may have in Mexico. But there's also like the, when you get towards the end, it's sort of, it's hard to tell if the priest is shifting positions and he does seem to sort of ease up a bit and be more embracing of what's going on. Or is that just, they were really pissed that day and Thomas Milan stopped acting because it feels like there's a scene where the three of them are sitting together. I think it's the director and Hopper and Lan, and they're just like, it feels like an off cut, like where they're just kind of farting about and having a drink. And that's like the last time you see the priest where he just kind of ceases to be this force and sort of gets on it with everybody else. Yeah, I, I definitely have heard that Thomas Millian had a tough time on that movie and that, that what, what we see on screen, it was somewhat the result of what he was able to give. It still works, though, because especially, you know, you look at uh, Italian cinema and how Italian genre cinema has portrayed the Catholic Church and priests. They're well with that, that there's if if 
I'm I'm perfectly okay with that scene being a breaking of character because that still feeds into the idea that they're just that these priests are just playing another character, that they're just part of a different cult, they're the cult of Christ while they're the cult of the filmmakers. Um, and so he's, he's this sort of this lack of sort of fixed uh, dedication in the priest is is feels very very meaningful. Yeah, there's a story that Milian tells. I think it's in the Alex Cox documentary, Scene Missing, where he talks about how he was eating a piece of cake, and then he realized after they started to roll camera again that the cake had something in it, some sort of substance, and that he was unable to speak. So it's actually in the movie where he takes this drink before he starts to speak. And that kind of like dislodged his tongue from his, the top of his mouth. Cause he was just like, I can't say anything. And I don't remember if that's the scene that you're talking about, Ben, because it, as the movie goes on, the movie falls apart and it's, it's a very deliberate thing that the movie falls apart. And we're kind of seeing like behind the scenes, almost making of the movie while the movie is happening. And I, I know for sure that there's a bit where they really, they just completely break character and it, it's just like, yeah, these three actors rather than these three characters. And we get that also with Hopper at another point saying like, Hollywood. Hold on, you guys now. Wait, I want to get this thing over with. I got a lot of things I got to do. It's me. It's me. It's, it's me. It sounds like it's me. I'm a hammer, hammer. Listen. Huh? In Lysena. In Lysena. In Lysena. Don't touch me. When you hear that as Kansas, you're like, well, that doesn't necessarily ring true because it almost seems like, you know, bring on the death scene. But then when you hear hopper say it you recontextualize it as hopper you're like oh, okay yeah that makes more sense let's bring on the death scene let's get this movie wrapped up because we've been down here in peru for you know six weeks or whatever it is so let's get going well i think it's a, it part plays into the way that you, it revisits footage is interesting um because that destabilizes our ability to read whether or not an actor died in the film because you do get these replays of of, of violence and death scenes from the film it, without going i haven't gone back and looked at them ex- exactly to see if they are identical it's hard to tell whether you're seeing different takes like that definitely for me was part of it was like oh is this and are we revisiting this scene because we're revisiting it or is they just shooting another take and it kind of it again plays into that destabilizing that you're just you're not quite sure is it like you know was someone just going to call action cut whatever and restart it up again and it's like well where does and that again is the that sort of post-humanism of like how does memory function in this realm where we're both recreating it falsifying it re-editing it and how do you remember what was the original then you know mythology takes over and you end up with a lost film <laughs> one of the moments that, that's replayed enough to really sort of make an impression is is during this massive gunfight that we have where the the somebody who jumps up with a gun and says hey art and then and kills the character called art and i just like after the, th- the second or third time you're like okay yeah, death of art. Okay, we 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 got it. Like the the guy's called art, but uh, like it's just one of those many many things that is in there where you go like, okay, these guys were taking a lot of drugs and drinking a lot, and and this was this seemed subtle at the time, but you know when we've had it like three or four times, it looks like I got, it. I really yeah. 
Well, that's it's interesting with the. Let me just hammer that home. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there's, there's a bloody habit home. But I, I, I the what I because I wasn't. I'm sorry. I'm so sick of religions. I'm just sick of religions. I'm sick of religions in films. <laughs> so I guess I was looking everywhere, but to like, no, I'm I'm not going to give in to you, Dennis Hopper. I'm not going to read this film as a Christ parable. Fuck off. Um, <laughs> but it, Instead, I kind of stripped it back a couple more layers, and I thought about it as uh, the creation and enacting of culture, of how culture works, how it's exchanged, how it's built up, and that religion is essentially just another facet of that. It's the it's it, it's almost like a, this would actually make a fun double with um, Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar does that same kind of thing of going, oh, no, the Hollywood system is the same as the church's system, which is the same as the political system, which is the same as the economic system, and just lines them all up one next to the other and just goes like, yeah, pick which one you want to be a deity and go for it. Yeah, I talked about the introduction of uh, Thomas Millian kind of late in the game, but nowhere near as late as the introduction of the Don Gordon character, where it's just like all of a sudden, here's Don Gordon, and then he becomes this major character in the film for quite a little while and then drops out again. The introduction of Don Gordon, I mean, it's almost another movie inside of the movie. And it's this whole idea of him, like, oh, I've got this map for gold mine. And then all of a sudden it becomes like this, we got to get money so that we can get this uh, gold mine set up and all of these schemes happening. And it's just this really bizarro turn that we are suddenly now in this other movie this other plot is going on and there's a real tonal shift here and it becomes this whole idea of like them whining and dining these women and they've got their husbands and then this uh, affair that hopper's having with one of the wives and then the way that he puts maria in this strange place and then them going to this whorehouse and that's like i kind of got the feeling that maria was a prostitute because of this way that she is saying earlier in the film like oh well if we don't have enough money i I can go back to work. I can support you. And it feels like, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. And I was just like, oh, I wonder if she was a prostitute. But then when this guy, Nino, who I don't remember from earlier in the film, he shows up and he's just like, you turned her into a whore. And it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's like out of nowhere. That's, yeah. that's when I, the, I like to think of the film becoming a vinegar syndrome release. <laughs> so I've been watching a lot of vinegar syndrome releases lately. And there's so many of those like no budget borderline outsider cinema kind of thrillers where they're just like chuck this in left and right and oh wait we couldn't afford to shoot that so we'll just have them catching up afterwards and going damn actually the the film that this that remind this reminded me of most was uh the astrologer that film that no one can release because the guy put all the moody blues soundtrack over the top of it if you ever get a chance to see the astrologer i know draft house has a print and screen it they can show it theatrically, but they can't release it on their video. And it feels a lot like that, where that was like a passion project from this guy who paid for the whole thing, made, directed it and shot it and wrote and acted in it. And, and it does those same kind of weird, absurdist, like just jumps where it'll just like suddenly his whole life will be like, no, fuck this and goes and moves to Peru. Like something like that happens in the astrology where he takes off and just this, this, that, yeah, again, the word discord, like the discord in personal narrative and the way that, you know, our lives are so much more unmanageable and, and chaotic and, you know, you just forget shit and suddenly you're getting attacked by Nino. It's like, what's going on? It's, it's, a, it's a little confusing, but I think Mar- the Maria character is supposed to be a prostitute who Hopper has sort of taken out of the game, as it were, and and taken out of the whorehouse and, and sort of offered this other life to as 
this Westerner who is coming to save her. It's like we're we're in a different film. Like there there's there's like there's like the Sam Fuller film within the movie, and then this, which is like its own little thing, which seems to be uh, you know it's it's, it's curious. And, yeah, exactly. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia stage. <laughs> right, but but it's it, it's curious, and and then that movie and the whole thing with the gold, kind of like almost it's I think like the last coherent scene of the film is is this like completely absurdist almost like Beckettian thing about Don Gordon's complete lack of knowledge about about the gold and there's this line which I, I you know, again it's, it's it's something this is a little bit just before the end where he says something like we found the gold but we're never going to get rich and and to me it, it it's sort of like this anticipatory line of uh, like in, interpretation of of where they were with this film or like We've made a masterpiece, but nobody's ever going to recognize it. You know, like we found the gold, but we're never going to get rich. Like the fate of the artist, you know, whether it's like Orson Welles or, or Dennis Hopper is, is to, to make great art, but to be an outsider, to not be recognized, to not get rich, to not be accepted, to be a cornerstone as one of the, the, the discarded stones. But it, that also feels like a continuation of his search for the American dream. And it's like, you know, we're looking for the American dream. We're in it. <laughs> and it's just as much a curse as it is a blessing. That final, I think it's, it, there's a lot of remarkable stuff in this film. That ending is one of the most remarkable things because somehow Dennis Hopper gets to have his intense, emotional, artistic ending with his real, quotation marks, death as becoming a part of the the new native film, but then also gets to then tack on this really silly, like you said, absurd as kind of Paquettian uh, ending, which is clearly from earlier in the film. It's such a sort of perfect one-two punch that I, I'm not even, like, I'm not sure how he did it, that it, how to, like, that just it's some sort of magic that came out of the film that, that the only way to finish it was to have... You're, you're, you're over the top, but also absurdist ending side by side. So you have this kind of, I don't even know. It's it's such a, I, I just, I'd completely forgotten about that ending. And when it ended today, I just like, I loved it. I like, it, it left me with such a smile on my face as the film finished, which is so strange and very rare for these kind of new Hollywood films for a film that is dealing with a lot of dark things and is very lost and is about a broken person who is about to become a hell of a lot more broken in reality. Like the film does leave you feeling pretty good. <laughs> I think the last line is like blood is everywhere. Um, so he still does get that sort of like possibly slightly pseudo profound statement in there after the absurdity, but it, it's true. It is like this, it's almost like sort of, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby or something, you know, it's, it's oh, like Bikettian, yeah. but it's also just like, it's a road movie, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, there's also like, I've, I've got the, the Phil Hardy's encyclopedia Westerns here and I was reading up on it. They, that's actually, it's, it's quite interesting because that was from the eighties and that's a very positive review in there, which there wasn't, didn't feel like there was too many from that time, but it, it's, it, it quotes a line from the film, which I didn't catch when I watched it this time. Um, I kind of like just love it anyway, because it does summarize one of the discussions in the film and what they quoted, as, as them having said is I seriously doubt viewing Treasure of the Sierra Madre is sufficient preparation for a gold mining expedition <laughs> and I don't know if they I, I don't know if they're misquoting or not but that is the, a, that scene in the film is him arguing that he knows that, he's, that his friend knows how to uh, 
uh, gold mine because he's watched the Treasure of Sierra Madre. And if Walter Houston could find gold, then he can too. <laughs> it is such a beautiful scene. That 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 is one of those scenes I just love. I look forward to to when I get a proper copy of this and show people. Like that is absolutely one of the best scenes in the film because again, it feels so out of place, but yet at the same time, it completely feeds into every part of this film of the sort of the absurdity and the denial and the the fakery, but also the sort of the the honesty and the humanity and the the passion and that imagination, imagining that that train knows where it's going. I have a stupid question, guys. Does Don Gordon's character, does he kill himself? Nobody dies in the movies. It's all fakery. It's all funny. <laughs> well, because I read that in one review of it, and I was just like, <laughs> I don't remember him killing himself. But like I said, I'm rather dense. So. I certainly didn't pick up on that. I, I love reviews where they start talking about whole plots that don't happen in the film. They, they're the best. I'll never forget, really, there was a... One of the big critics here in Melbourne had clearly gotten plonked on the red wine before he saw Rain of Fire because his review was describing all these dumb plots that didn't weren't even in the film. But um, yeah, no, I, I honestly don't know. I just, I don't think anybody dies in the film. You can't die in the film because it's the film. The way that this movie kind of, like I said, falls apart at the end of those that like art house scene of the breasts and the milk and the baby and him and the crying and the soundtrack Mike, just going the, wild. Uh, the nipple suck jump cut. Is that the one you're referring to? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I, yes. I personally yes. believe that's a Jodorowsky thing right there, but uh, cause yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> Though it was in this, like parts of it were in the script. I mean, I didn't get a chance to read the script, but there was one uh, article I was reading that was quoting from the script like crazy because they kept having to specify that the character's name was Tex. Like they couldn't trust that the reader would figure out that Kansas was Tex because they had to say it like every time they would introduce the script, they'd be like, <laughs> and remember the character's name was Tex in the script. And then they would give us a, a block of text, but, um, or block of text. Yeah. When you hear the bell, remember that it's not Tex. And they had part of the, yes, the nipple jump cut scene. And yeah, this, it, it just, like I said, it, it just goes well. I want to read real quick um, it, because Hopper mentions this a couple times, talking about the way that the film breaks down. And there were some changes that he made, big surprise, that I'm really – I think I'm glad that he didn't go this way. So I want to read this real quick. <laughs> and you can tell this is Hopper from the, the – the third word in the sentence well first man i want to make the audience believe i want to build a reality for them then towards the end i want to start breaking down that reality so that it uh deals with the nature of reality i don't know whether i'm going to die or not at the end but at the very end you'll see lots of cuts to, of old movies like wc fields and may west and so on universal which put up the money they've got a fantastic old film library man i can do anything i want with it then the film jerks and cuts and tears and you see the leader numbers again so that uh, it doesn't matter if Kansas dies or not. It's the film that dies. So I'm kind of glad that he didn't go the W.C. Fields May West route. Yeah, that's when Monty Hellman called him up and goes, uh, Dennis, um, that's uh, how I'm finishing my film. Um... <laughs> Back off, bro. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it is like Universal was gave them a lot of freedom because I always found it fascinating that um in the two because two lane blacktop was the first of them to be released if I remember correctly. So it is technically it's the first film to have the Universal logo without the Universal mu- music over the top of it. So your two lane blacktop opens with the sounds of cars revving over the Universal logo, and last movie does the same thing where it opens with the sound of the the Peruvian um, the, the fair or whatever that is that's the the celebration that's going on. Um, so that was that was a big deal when you think you know 1971 that that's you know 50 plus 60 plus years of never having the Universal logo be altered in any way that wasn't cohesive with what they did. Um, it shows that they were really willing to just go do it, whatever, go for it. We believe in you. Well, the thing, Mike, you were saying before about about the title card coming in twenty five minutes. Like, I think it's fifteen minutes, and we see a film by Dennis Hopper. He really like <laughs> he's very clearly going like there are no rules. We're we're throwing you in. I'm going to decide when my auteur statement is going to be made. I'm going to tell you when this is the last movie, and you can really understand it. Like, it's he's really showing that he's the boss. Nick, I have to ask you, when you watched this again recently, did they have the countdown before the uh, rating came up or before the No, the first thing level? that came up for for me was the rating. Okay. Because at least in the VHS version that I watched, uh, they had the numbers, the leader numbers come in. So I was always curious if that was actually part of the movie or not, because it seems like something that would be fitting. Completely. And it's funny because I think it's something where – I could never have told whether that like such feels like such a hopper touch that you'd have the leader first. I wonder if that was maybe it would be really interesting to know where that VHS came from because perhaps when Hopper got control of it himself, um, maybe he added that on, and so then there's a brief period where the versions out there have that. That's entirely possible, and then the restoration might strip it out just because it's going back to the original negative. But that's totally I have no idea. I'm just get, guessing. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a series of interviews. You're going to hear from film restorer Craig Rogers, Arbolos founder David Marriott, musician John Buck Wilkin, writer Jessica Hunley, and filmmakers Nick Ebeling and Satya De La Manitou. And you'll hear all of those. Don't worry, I'll introduce each one of them so you don't get lost. You'll hear all of those after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10... Free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. 
how to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. is Carl Kolchak. He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast all about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gory the Ghoul could make up. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. Up first, we are going to hear from film restorer Craig Rogers of Arbelos Films. Craig, how did you get into or get involved with film restoration? Well, I started with IMAX back in 2000. I was there for about 11 years. A lot of the work we did there uh, in the post side of things there was what well, was cleaning up images because the screens were so large. We had to make sure that everything was super, super clean. And I kind of liked that aspect of what I did there. And then when I left there, I realized love of history and film history and I kind of liked the tool sets I was using for cleanup. I started my own little boutique company and reached out to some of the people I had met while I was at IMAX and started doing some restoration work. What is involved when it comes to restoration? And what were some of those early projects that you worked on? The word restoration kind of gets thrown around and means different things to different people. My definition of it is there's there's essentially there's restoration and there's preservation. And restoration for me is cleaning up an image to get it to look essentially as good as it could possibly have looked the day it was released. Preservation is a lot of times people will call it restoration, but what they really mean is preservation is and that's and that's a you know mostly in a laboratory analog. You know, making sure that the actual film elements uh, survive both work kind of together. Because if they don't do that, then I don't have elements to work with in the digital field to get to clean. So I know a lot of times people will say restoration and they mean preservation and vice versa. But yeah, for me, it's, it's kind of like I want, I want to, I want to watch this film and I want it to look like it did on opening night you know, in New York or L.A. with one of their show prints off the original Meg. See it as, as nice as it could look. From what I understand, you 
get film elements, and I might be using that term incorrectly, but kind of the the raw the I'm thinking the rawest version of something that you possibly can get, and then you like wave a wand and suddenly everything looks fantastic. Is that pretty much how your job goes? On a really good day, sure. <laughs> um, obviously, we always try to strive to get the original negative because that's the, the element that went through the camera and there's no degradation. You lose a lot of information every time the laboratory makes an element. So let's start out with the original negative. That is as pristine and sharp and good as you can get. As soon as you take that, and the first thing they usually do will, is to make a, an inner positive from that negative. And now you've got a, a positive image on like negative stock, which they make that so they can make a duplicate negative because they don't generally want to, back in the day, that original negative is so precious, they don't want to ruin it. So they'll make a duplicate of it. So by the time you get to a duplicate negative, you're already two generations away and you've already lost a lot of information. So in the digital world, we like to go back to that original negative to, to retain as much of the picture as possible. The downside to that is that IP, the inner positive stage, they will quite often have the color timing that they wanted uh, built into that. You go back to the original negative, you're starting from scratch. There's no color timing. So you, that adds a, a whole another layer of work getting the colors to look the way you want them to look when a lot of times that original neg was long ways away from what they ultimately wanted it to look like. So for an example, something like McCabe and Mrs. Miller might look super clean and nice and bright and shiny in that original negative, but then they went through so many steps to give it that kind of worn storybookish type of look that we see when we go to see it at the movie theater. That's, a, that's probably a good example, yeah. Um, there's there's lots of times where just things will be just, you know, more exposed than they want, and, you know, they'll darken it up in the laboratory. But when you go and look at the original camera neg, you know, you've got that overexposed uh, element, or vice versa, you've got things that are underexposed. There's so much more that we can do digitally with color than it's kind of amazing how much time and effort was put into photographing things properly and because they were so limited with what they could do once it was photographed. Whereas now, as long as they got an image, we're like, good, <laughs> we can make it look great. <laughs> so I think there was a lot of artistry back then that's probably kind of lost a bit now, digital intermediates, you know, because there's so much more they can do after the fact that up front, it's not, as, not quite as important to get it exactly right, you know, going through the camera. So how do you learn film restoration? Did you have a mentor when you were picking this up? No, it's uh, it's just been learning a lot every single project I do. Uh, I started off with, I had mentioned that the, I was at IMAX, and actually my first restoration work was with uh, Greg McGilvery, who's done a, has a very long career in large format films. But before that, he was shooting surfing films on 16mm back in the 60s, and he wanted to dig some of those out of his vault and see what, what he could do with them. So I was doing restoration work on his really early um, surfing films. And that's what I started with. What were some of the lessons that you learned when you were doing those first projects? The end result is, is always kind of the same. It's just a matter of 
just even this, the basics of the software, most of these more advanced programs don't come with heavy-duty manuals. <laughs> Almost like any, any of the, even any of the Adobe products, that, uh, they, they can do so much that there usually isn't any one person that knows how to do everything because it was a huge team that created it. So uh, just the more you do and the more you play with it, the more you figure out different tricks and ways to save time. And so it's just, it's just like that kind of incremental learning. I mean, I, I've, I'd seen enough film, you know, at IMAX and, and I knew what ultimately I wanted to look like. So it was just a matter of how do you get there? It wasn't deep film knowledge. Like I said, I got that from my experience at IMAX and then went to film school prior to that. So it was the restoration part of it was trial and error of what's the most efficient way of doing it. What were some of those projects that you've worked on that we might have seen? While I was working on the the surfing films for Greg McGilvery, I actually needed a high-quality 16-millimeter scan from a, a positive element. And so I went to St. Lucius in Hollywood because I knew they had a good scanner. And so the, while they were scanning that, they liked what I was doing and offered me a job there to head up their fledgling restoration department. It was there that I started working on features. So we did um, the Japanese anime Belladonna of Sadness that was did really well uh, theatrically and Blu-rays and uh, followed that up with a 1960, because it's kind of noir, called Private Property, with Corey Allen and Warren Oates. I think it was Warren Oates, might have been his first film. And that film is thought to be uh, lost for 40, 50 years, but uh, UCLA, in their preservation efforts, found a, uh, a duplicate negative. Followed up Private Property uh, with another Japanese film, uh, Funeral Parade of Roses which was, uh, that one was a real treat to work on because it was, the movie itself was so unusual and the photography was beautiful. We were, we had access to the original negatives. That really turned out beautiful. And then we went from there, Sinalicious. We parted ways with Sinalicious. Um, Some of the guys from there and myself started this new company, Marbleos. So the restoration of Funeral Parade was at Sinalicious and the, uh, we were finishing that up, and now the distribution and all that has been handled by our new company, Arbalos. And now our new uh, our new feature is uh, Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, which we've wrapped the restoration, and it is uh, it debuted at the uh, yeah in in Bologna, Italy, the, the the festival that was just last week. So it premiered there last week, and then it's going to be opening at the Metrograph in New York on the third of August. And then hit in LA and all sorts of other cities. So that's pretty exciting since it, it's getting a bigger rollout now in 2018 than it did when it really came out in, in the early 70s. Do you happen to know kind of the pedigree of, of the film? Like, where did this version that you were working on come from? Directly from the, from the, the Hopper uh, Art Trust and, and Family Estate. Because he actually had bought the rights back from Universal, so he owned it. And he had actually wanted to do a restoration and release before he died, but sadly didn't didn't get a chance to. What shape were the elements when you got them? It was kind of all over the place. Some of the, the, the real one was pretty rough. There were lots of negative tears and 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 scratches. For the most part, we were able to use the original negative though, so that was great. There's a couple of shots at the head of real five that were from a, a different element, 
and I think one shot in real one from a different element. And then there's, I think there's only two opticals where the titles come on screen and those were cut in. So those, those uh, optical elements were cut in. So it wasn't the original neg on those two, two shots. But other than that, the rest of it's from the original neg and really looks beautiful. From real to real, it varied as far as the damage. Real one being the, the most heavily damaged of the reels. How much research do you do before you even start looking at the elements that you're getting? Not a whole lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, I want to see the film uh, if it's a, if there's any way to to see it to get a sense of like what it's about, the era it was in, like what what is it supposed to you know what what it especially the era to kind of get an idea of what it's supposed to look like as far as like film grain and color saturation and stuff like that because i'm i'm real big on it looking like it was when it came out um i'm not trying to make it look better than it would have so that's that's important to me yeah so a lot of like a lot of times that we the cinema purists tend to like our releases because we don't mess with the film grain i know a lot of a lot of restorations will really deep you know try to remove film grain doesn't doesn't jive with our philosophy, so we leave that we leave that alone. But yeah, it's mostly mostly that is is to, to understand the the time period it's coming from the you know the cinematography, the film stocks, just so it looks it looks like it did then. Uh, I'm not trying to make a film from the 70s look like it was shot today. Well, what's your reference when it comes to that? I mean, the only version of the last movie that was available for a long time was just a crappy VHS. I mean, how do you look at something and go, this is the right color, this isn't the right color? Somewhere around 2005, 2007, Dennis had made a new print that um, he had looked at, he had approved, Laszlo Kovacs had looked at and approved, and so we were able to screen that print um, at the Cinematheque in L.A., and get to see like this is this is what they saw and they signed off on this so that was kind of our baseline for what the film was supposed to look like um which was was helpful um because there were several shots that the i noticed when we were watching it that the the subject you know quite often dennis in the foreground was uh, heavily in shadow because they had timed the print so that the sky wasn't overexposed and blown out so a lot of times without seeing that without knowing that you might have timed it for the actor and just let the sky blow out but uh it's good to be able to see that's not what they wanted they wanted the sky to look natural and if dennis was in shadow then dennis was in shadow um the other interesting thing as far as color timing goes is uh the head of the academy was actually there with us and he was he's the only person still alive that was in that screening with Dennis and Maslow. And he had mentioned also that in the the first beginning of the film is a lot of the on set shooting the Western, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes kind of stuff. And we noticed even in the print we were watching that the timing was kind of kind of all over the place. It wasn't, you know, from shot to shot, things were, you know, brighter or bluer. It wasn't wasn't as cleanly timed as you might expect. And he said that that was pretty much intentional, that they got it close. They were basically, they got it close enough because they were like, they wanted it to be clearly, this is a, you know, you're watching a movie. So they wanted that kind of behind the scenes. It's not finished. It's not real. 
to stay in the movie. So that was also very helpful information. So, so in the beginning of the, the film, you'll notice there's some shots that are overexposed, and there's there's it's not what you would expect for most films. Is you know from shot to shot, it's like a seamless color timing, but that is is and was intentional. When you get the elements delivered to you, or however they come to you, what are your first steps? What do you do initially? It depends um, who's going to be scanning it. Uh, and even then, it's pretty much the same steps. It's just a matter of who's doing it, I guess. But uh, the first thing is the elements need to be inspected. So they'll, they'll get, you know, someone will roll through them, check the, all the, make sure all the um, splices are, are clean and nothing's going to break while it runs through the, the scanner. Anything that needs to be repaired, you know, reinforcing splices or, or fixing a tear or whatever. Um, and then basically writing a report up so everyone knows this is what the element is uh, before it gets scanned. And that's as much as a, just a historical record. And also it's helpful to know, you know, what you're going to be getting into when you, when you get into the digital realm, like uh, for each reel. And, and it's also, you know, just a, a, a safety, you know, precaution that, you know, you've documented this is the condition of the element before it was scanned. And you don't give the element back to, to the owner and they say, hey, you tore it. And you're like, no. No, it was in the inspection <laughs> that was torn before. <laughs> so yeah, the first step is definitely just to inspect it and make sure it can safely go through uh, uh, both a, a film cleaner and or scanner. And then they'll usually, you know, we'll clean it and then scan it uh, each reel. So that's the first step. It's almost like renting a car and you go around and you do that little checklist. Yep. If there's any dings or anything. Yeah, <laughs> yep, definitely. Yeah. I mean, because because especially if this is a you know an original negative, like it is a it is a one of a kind precious element. You want to make sure you don't damage it, and that any any damage that's there is already noted. So you know you got to cover yourself. <laughs> so once all of that is done, the documentation is done. How long does it take to scan? And I imagine you're scanning one canister, one roll at a time to just capture those original elements. Uh, yeah, scanning scanning actually doesn't take all that long. I mean, even even the the slowest scanner is going to be able to scan 4K at at, at least three frames per second. So that's uh, so it's like that would be like eight times real time. Um, so if a two hour movie, that would take 16 hours, and that's is about as slow of as a scanner as you're going to probably use. Um, and then it goes up from there. Some scanners can be can scan much faster than that, but depending on the element condition of the element, you know, sometimes you're going to want to slow down to make sure it's safer, but yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, it's, it's, you know, a, a days, you know, two, two, two work days and you can probably get through a, a feature. Um, so yeah, the scanning is the quickest and easiest part. The inspection probably takes longer than the actual scanning. Is that when you come in with your magic wand? Yeah. And, and we, depending on the project and the, and the timeline and, and scheduling, will sometimes simultaneously have uh, someone doing color grading while someone else is simultaneously doing cleanup and restoration. And the way that works is uh, the person color grading will be working on a set of files. The person doing the cleanup will be working on a set of files. Uh, and then typically the color grade will be done first. And then what they need to do is once the cleanup is done, you make sure you, you keep the same file names and then you can just swap them 
and then the color grade will just apply right on top of the clean files. That way we can we can have both both workflows going at the same time. Um, but if we have more time, um, it just makes it a little easier sometimes if you do the grade first because you've got the the proper contrast. Um, but either way, those are the two the two major pieces of of really getting it to look fantastic is the color grade and the and the the cleanup. You know, the, everyone talks about the restoration, but a major part of that is is the the color grading. It, it can make a night and day difference, especially if you've got some elements that have faded. Um, there were a couple of shots in the last movie that were heavily, heavily faded red, and I was really worried that they might have been too far gone, and we'd have to find another element for that shot. And then they were actually able to be graded, and they they fit in seamlessly. Well, tell me about the restoration, because I've seen, like, before and after shots from different movies, from the last movie and then from other things along the way. And it just, it's amazing to see, you know, I'm seeing scratches, I'm seeing, you know, tears, I'm seeing all of this stuff. How are you even able to begin to restore those elements? The software itself is, is, it's analyzing, it's looking at usually about uh, upwards to 10 frames before and after the frame you're looking at. And the, the interesting thing is that the most dramatic fixes, like if there's a frame that's torn in half, those kind of things actually are, are usually the easier things to fix because it's just looking at the frames before and after and it kind of creates uh, almost a, a whole new frame. Um, and it can do that almost on its own automated uh, for the mo- for quite often. Um, but those are the big dramatic ones. You're like, wow, how did you do that? And you're like, oh, that was actually quite easy. Like, like this shot here with all these tiny, faint little scratches all over it, that is so much harder because that all has to be done manually. <laughs> so for a lot, for a lot of the the, the process, it's, it's kind of like semi-automated. And then that's the first level. Is like you go through, look at shot by shot, set your tools to to what makes the most sense is appropriate for those shots, and it's usually dependent on how much uh, action is in the shot, uh, the settings you can use. Or what the problem is, if it's, you know, if it's dirt or if it's flicker or if it's not stable or, um, you know, all the different different various problems that could happen, you, you have different tools and you want to set them appropriately for each shot. So we'll let that run and go through the whole, the whole film. But then you go back and, of course, it's not going to get everything. And it's also going to fix things that it didn't, that weren't problems. So the, the next pass is to go through undo the things it wasn't supposed to do and then also and then also manually you know frame by frame get the stuff that that it it didn't get um, so it's it's time consuming it's it's laborious and uh you kind of have to be kind of zen about it or you'll kind of lose your mind because you're just staring at the screen you know not blinking <laughs> uh just looking for any little thing that pops up if you kind of get in the zone and, and it's actually kind of fun, it's not, I, I find it kind of relaxing. <laughs> what are some of the mistakes, quote unquote, that the machine tries to fix? Well, it's funny. Uh, in the last movie, a lot of it was shot outdoors. And anything shot outdoors, uh, there's lots of insects, insects or birds flying around. And uh, the software will almost always try to remove them because they're moving quickly across the screen. and it, it just looks like a spot of dirt and it just removes it. So when I have it go through and it does its like semi-automated tasks, and then I go back and I look at it, 
what I'm also looking for is I'll, I'll have it set in a mode where it's showing me in red everything on the screen that, that it, it has fixed. And those things like birds or insects jump out because you can see like a little red dot like go across the screen. Um, and I know it's like, okay, that's, that's not dirt. <laughs> um, and then I can just undo that. So there were a lot of, a lot of birds and insects that I put back into the movie after the software had removed them. Um, and well, the first time we screened it in the theater after the restoration, there were, there were a few shots I remember spending a lot of time on making sure all the insects were in there. And then they were so small, you, you didn't even notice it anyway. <laughs> but I was like, at least I know they're in there. <laughs> and what are some of those remaining things that you then have to go in and do by hand? And how are you actually fixing these things by hand? Even the ones that you do manually, every little piece that you clean manually, the software is still essentially doing it the same way it does it when it does it automatically in that it's looking at the frames before and after. And so you you know, you know tell it, like, this little spot here is dirt. And so it'll look at the frames before and after and go, okay, well, what should be there if that's not supposed to be there? And it'll usually fill it in. But there's several different ways it can do it. So it depends on – it's it's always about the action behind the dirt. You know, it's great if it's just a sky because nothing changes. It's very easy to fix. But, you know, if you've got a piece of dirt that shows up on somebody that was running across the frame, the frames before and after don't look anything alike. So that that's when it becomes a little more difficult. You kind of have to kind of paint it in and recreate that spot completely by hand because there isn't anything for the computer to pull from. Um, so that's where it, it just slows down. Like, it's, it's great when you've got a, a, a show that's, there's not a lot of you know on-screen action. We did a we did 400 plus episodes of of uh, an old Western TV series called Death Valley Days, and uh, that show was great to work on because the the elements were, were they were somewhat dirty, but we had the original negative, and being like a 50s TV show, like the camera was locked off like 99% of the time. And actors, actors were, you know, just hitting marks. And there was very, there might have been like one fight scene per episode, but the rest of it was very much talking heads, camera locked off. And it made restoration like, like we were able to get through like three episodes a week. <laughs> it, was, it was a, it was a dream job, <laughs> especially because in the end, it also turned out looking, you know, amazing because we had the original negative. So it was beautiful when we were done with it. Is this one of those things where you go in in the morning, you look at things, you set things up, you let the computer do its job, you come back, you check its work kind of thing? Or are you there like pouring over frame by frame as things are working? Kind of a hybrid of that because I'll usually do about a reel or even sometimes like a half a reel at a time. And so that, that semi-automated task that I let just let it do it on its own it'll get through that in a few hours. So while it's doing that, I can be working on something else. And then when it's done, I'll go back to that. And that's when I start undoing, you know, the artifacts it's created. And then also frame by frame, cleaning up the stuff that, that it missed. Um, so yeah, it's, it's once, once it's doing that semi-automated pass, it is pretty much, you just got to wait, let it finish, but there's always plenty to keep me busy doing something else while it's doing that. How long would you say that it took you to restore the last movie? From the scan to the grading, it was a good, solid, probably close to six months, four to six months. Um, but it, one, it was there were definitely, you know, it was it was not the cleanest negative ever. Um, 
everything's you know seeing all the documentaries about it is kind of amazing it's it existed at all still but uh and also we 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 really took our time with it we weren't we weren't rushing this is definitely it's our first our first feature that we're releasing under our new new company and we wanted this to absolutely be you know as great as we could possibly make it um which is not to say that's not what we do with the other releases but there was just an, like an added pressure, like this has got to be right, you know. So, so you know, like the color grading, we went through what we thought was we had allotted a certain amount of time, and we're like, all right, no problem, we'll be able to do that. And we probably like almost double or tripled the amount of time we spent, you know, making sure the color was right. I think it's it's worth it. It's a little, it's it's hard to when you've worked on it for so long and you're 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 really nitpicking, like you're looking literally at every frame. It can be a little hard to sit back and watch it and appreciate what it looks like now versus watching it and still noticing like, damn, there's a piece of dirt in the corner I missed, you know? Um, but everyone else see it says it looks amazing. So I'm trusting them that it, it looks amazing. <laughs> How many times do you reckon you've seen the last movie now? I've seen it all the way through four or five times now. It's getting to be release time in the screening. So I'm sure I'll probably double that in the next month or two. <laughs> So are you still going and like taking notes or is your work completely done? We, there's yeah, we've reached the point now. And this is, this is kind of uh everyone always asks, well, like, oh, how long does it take to restore a movie? And the honest to God answer is when is this, when does it need to, when's the screening? Uh, <laughs> Cause there's even, even the, the um, we had actually sent a DCP. We were done. We're like, no, we're done. Sent the DCP to Italy for the screening. And just saw a few more things and we're like, no, we, we like we were checked with them. We're like, do we have time? Like way overnight FedEx. Like, can we send you another version? <laughs> um, Cause we're like, yeah, we just, you know, and even now I'm like, there's a couple of things that I'm just like, Oh man, I wish I could have got those. But I'm like, you know, it's, it's shipping to theaters. Like, you know, we got to we're, we're in high gear to work on the Blu-ray release now. So it's never done. The deadline is how long it takes. <laughs> So are you you're still cranking on the Blu-ray, or have you moved on to Satan Tango? We're working on both. Uh, focusing right now on, on the, the Blu-ray release of, of the last movie, um, but we also have Satan Tango, and there's there's like two others unannounced that we're we got we got a, a lot of things going on at the same time right now. <laughs> um, but the Blu-ray release should be pretty spectacular. We've got a, a ton of really cool bonus features that are going to be able to be put on it. It'll definitely be the, the biggest release we've done yet. Do you ever get surprised when you're going through and working on stuff? Are there ever any times where you're like, oh, that was an interesting choice for an edit, or here's a little piece that wasn't in the final version that we ended up seeing? All the time. Um, the Roses uh, was another one that, that was an experimental filmmaker, and there's lots of of like breaking the the fourth wall and lots of like throwing in stuff that's that's you know clearly like all of a sudden it's like he's throwing in your face like this is a movie um so there were a few elements that we had to actually go to the director and go hey is is this supposed to be in the film or was or should this be cut out because we were like in the middle of a shot there'll be there was cut in like a like a sensor you know stamp from japan um uh, and he's like, no, 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 that's that stays in. And then 
we actually got the scans and I, I mentioned how beautiful the scans for that film were and we're looking through them and we noticed that the the stamp was dated like 1989 and we're like 1989 we're like like what element did they scan we're, we were told this was the original negative and the, and the scans look so nice that I can't imagine this is not the original negative, but again, we asked him, we're like, so this is 1989. He's like, oh yeah, that was just a joke. Uh, it's really 1969. So, so yeah, he threw in all sorts of stuff that if he, and luckily we were able to go back to him and ask, uh, cause sadly he, he died just before the release uh, that we did. But yeah, there was, there's one shot, probably no one will notice it because it's one shot and it's not super noticeable, but he had a completely different aspect ratio on one shot. Um, and so it's like, it's much narrower and taller. And I don't know, cause it was an outdoor shot of some tall buildings. I don't know if that's why he did it. And we're like, so we noticed this one shot's different. He's like, it's like, yeah, I don't remember, but he's like, that's cool. Like make it a different aspect ratio. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the real marks to indicate the end of a reel. He intentionally wanted those seen on screen. So yeah, there's stuff like that. You know, he they, they punched the, the original negative for the real break markers because he wanted to make sure that all of the prints and everything, that those real break markers were visible in the movie. Uh, so I think, I don't know what release, but I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a previous release of the Funeral Parade of Roses where, understandably, the, whoever did the, the, the restoration, you know, removed those because they're typically not kept. <laughs> But knowing all the other weird, quirky things he put in it, we asked him, we're like, so the real breaks, you want those in there? He's like, yes, definitely. <laughs> Leave those in. I'm like, okay. It's super helpful when you, you know, the filmmakers are, are still around so you can ask these questions because otherwise you're, you know, the best you can do is do as much research as you can and, you know, make your best guess. <laughs> Did you have any people that you had to kind of run everything past when it came to the last movie? Like, is this the right way? I mean, you talked about the one person who was at right. one so of that, the screenings, he, but did he, you... he was able to give us a little insight into the color grading and then being able to screen that print was, was, was super helpful. Other than that, I mean, that print was, you know, Dennis had assembled this, you know, the negative. So there were, there weren't too many questions as far as like edits or, or anything like that. So, because it, it, this was Dennis had put this this negative together. You know, he'd done a preservation, made that print, so we knew this is this is what he wanted it to look like. That was good that he had already done that legwork because he, you know, I'd said he he wanted to do a a restoration, a re-release already, so he kind of done some of that legwork already. Do you see the sun very much? Not when I'm working. No, uh, I actually even have all my windows taped up and blocked out so the sun doesn't get in. <laughs> Much much easier to see dirt on a, on a on a monitor if you're in a dark room. So I got the the windows taped up and the door shut. <laughs> Have you ever done a really stupid thing and we're trying to clean off dirt that was actually on your monitor and not on the print itself? Many times. <laughs> I'm like click click click. I'm like what the heck? And then move the frame and I see the dirt doesn't move. I'm like oh. <laughs> Up next, we have Arbolos co-founder David Marriott. I have to apologize for this. The audio quality isn't too good, so please sit tight and still enjoy. My name is David Marriott, and I am a co-founder of Arbolos, and I oversee the distribution division. So how did you get involved with Arbolos? Sort of the Arbolos 
brain trust, for lack of a better word, sort of came out of our previous company called Sinalicious Picks. It was a distribution and post-production label that had been around for about four and a half years on the, or I should say four years on the distribution side and about seven and a half on the post-production side. And about a year and a half ago, we decided to sort of rebrand and spin off as Arbolos. And that is sort of how we, we came to be as a company. How did the decision to restore and distribute the last movie come about? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, these um, these restoration projects, depending on you know what the film is, who has the rights, where the materials are, they can come together very quickly, and they can sometimes take any number of years to to sort of get organized. The last movie was something. I mean, the film has been very near to dear to me, sort of forever. I mean, I had it when it was on, you know, that first VHS tape that came out in like '93 or '94. So I've always been a big big champion of it. And in our first year at Cinelicious, we were kind of kicking around different titles that would be that would sort of fit the mandate of that company and 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 Arbolus as well. Sort of these these long forgotten, hard to see films that are sort of unsung masterpieces that are right for rediscovery. And the last movie was sort of like absolute number one, uh, sort of on my list. And I brought it up to Dennis Bartok, who was doing acquisitions with the Time, and he was a great fan of it as well. And so we got really excited about it. And then just sort of started on the trail of trying to figure out how we could get this going. We knew that Dennis in the early 2000s had gotten the rights to the film back from Universal and was very public about his um, sort of desire to restore the film and to re-release the film, uh, which, you know, sadly, of course, couldn't happen in his lifetime. Um, but we knew that that was sort of that was his wish. And so, yeah, so we sort of set about doing it. And, and you know, as these things go, we went back and forth and a number of years went by and we were never able to get it sort of off the ground. And then as we were starting this new company, Arbolos, finally all the pieces came together. Uh, and it was, it was just really amazing timing. You know, our first movie is the last movie. It couldn't, it couldn't be more perfect. The reason that we were finally able to kind of get this across the finish line is totally due to two people, a woman named Jessica Huntley, uh, and a man named Mike Plant. And they both knew Dennis, um, separately. Um, Jessica is an arts and culture reporter here in Los Angeles that was involved in the Tassin book of Dennis's photographs that had come out and just actually got re, uh, reprinted recently. Uh, and my plan is a programmer and festival organizer and filmmaker here in Los Angeles knew Dennis very well because he helped run Cinevegas, uh, which Dennis was involved with uh, in Las Vegas, obviously. So, so they were very close with the Hopper Art Trust who had the rights to the film and they were sort of able to, to become the, sort of the essential liaison between, between Arbolos and Hopper Art Trust and really helped, helped make that happen. So... We wouldn't be we wouldn't be talking about the film. We wouldn't be restoring the film if it weren't for uh, for Jeff and Mike. When was the first time that you saw the last movie? I am thirty three. I think I saw the first first time I saw the film was on that VHS tape. It came out in ninety three, but I saw it a little bit later. So I don't know. I must have been in high school, early high school. That VHS tape was that a, a legit release? I think it was a legit release at the time. Don't hold me to it, but I'm pretty sure that that was the only legit release of the film outside of uh, Dennis. Dennis had released, sort of self-released the DVD of the film, um, I think, towards the end of his life. Uh, but that wasn't put out by like a company or anything. It was sort of like self-produced by him. So I'm pretty sure that the VHS tape is the only official release of the film outside of its sort of aborted theatrical release in 1971. But again, don't hold me to that. <laughs> I was able to buy it through totally legal means in, in rural Canada. So I would assume it was, uh, it was legit. I mean, it seemed like it, but at the same time, the cover art was just so kind of shoddy i mean it felt like almost like a good times release you know i'm very proud to say that uh, no matter what anybody thinks i think that i think our blu-ray cover our DVD cover might set the bar a little bit higher 
I would hope so. I would hope so. Yeah, yeah, me too. But yeah, that was how I first that's how I first came to see the film because you know I was just you know growing up like a film nerd and you know you hear it's funny with the last movie because in a lot of ways out of everything in that new Hollywood era, it's it's sort of like the best known of those films that almost no one has seen, um, and that was certainly the case for me. I was like I think the the VHS was like a catalog thing. It was expensive. I was to Canada. Like it was no small feat even to get that version. Um, but I was mm-hmm. so immediately curious. Who ended up owning the rights? I mean, with with uh, Dennis dying, was it his family that ended up with the rights? Yeah, so the rights are held uh, by the Hopper Art Trust, which is run by his daughter, uh, Mara Hopper, and um, a family friend named Alex Hitt. And they, they took over the rights um, after Dennis passed away. And what was your goal once you acquired this? Like, what are the next steps in order to bring this to the public? Sure. I mean, the next step after that was beginning the rather extensive restoration project on the film. I mean, that's really the goal. The goal is to get the film in front of as many people as we can and the best possible version. That's sort of, you know, that is that is always the, the sort of the number one priority because, you know, we're talking about a film that really this will this will be the first wide release that the film ever had. You know, in 71, it played New York, it played Los Angeles and it played san francisco and was pulled after a week or two you know so um obviously there have been prints of it you know that have circulated but it's played intermittently in the intervening years but uh you know this will be the first the first proper official wide release that we take it really seriously um and yeah so it began with trying to figure out you know once we do the acquisition we've you know we've acquired the rights to the film uh we then set up trying to figure out where the elements live that will be the basis of the restoration so in this case, we were very lucky. Uh, we're based in Los Angeles. The elements were on deposit at the Academy Film Archive, which was great. We, it's a 20-minute drive away. We have a very good relationship with Data with the Academy Film Archive. They're phenomenal. They do phenomenal work. Much like Mike and Jeff, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about the film if it weren't for their efforts. So we're very much in their debt. But they had the original camera negative and the original sound materials on deposit, which is great. So we sent the original camera negative to Italy, to a um, very well-regarded lab called uh, Imagine Ritrovata. They've done you know, a million really wonderful restoration projects, and they handled the film scanning. And then that was sent back to us, and our team did the digital cleanup. My colleague Craig Rogers oversaw that process, and then we screened the, the only sort of projectable 35-millimeter print currently in existence of the film that was also on deposit at the Academy as sort of a reference for the color work that we were going to do. So we showed that, we took a bunch of notes, we brought in our colorist, we had a big conversation, and then we did the color grading at Instinctual here in Los Angeles. And then the last step was restoring the audio, which we did um, with Audio Mechanics, John Polito here in, uh, in Burbank in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, we're really proud of how it, how it looks and sounds. It's a funny thing with the audio because, you know, the only way I had ever seen the film before we screened the 35 print for color reference was super doopy looking VHS. It sounded really muddy. So after you get this amazing sort of audio restoration, given the nature of the film, so many plot points are revealed in offhand dialogue. So you're listening to this thing after it's been restored. It's like, oh my God, that's what he's saying. This totally bridges this entire, you know, like narrative gap. It was a, it was a really fun experience. It sounds like everything is pretty much intact when you get the print. So you're not like searching through boxes and having to do that kind of archival uh, detective work, which I'm sure that a lot of people have had to do. Have you had to do that on previous projects? Yeah. I mean, the big one that we ran into that with was Belladonna's Sadness that we released in about two and a half, three years ago. 
and we were lucky in that case in that we had the original camera negative that was flown in from Japan that we scanned on site at our facility in Los Angeles. But after we were looking at the scans, we realized that about eight minutes of that film had been excised for, we believe, TV censorship reasons. So, you know, we had, you know, seven-eighths of the film that looked amazing and then eight minutes that were just gone. So in that case, we had to do a bunch of detective work and ultimately found an archive that had a 35 print that was fully intact, positive print. And they were kind enough to scan the missing sections that we needed and send them to us. Uh, regrettably, that print had, I believe, French or German subtitles. So there was a little bit of sort of digital cleanup that was required to go in there and sort of remove the subtitles. And then a bit of work that went into making sure that the uh, material eight minutes that was scanned from a positive print would blend seamlessly with the material that we scanned from the original camera negative. So yeah, that's sort of an example of but it's a little less a little less straightforward. How were the elements for the last movie when you got your hands on that? More or less better than I was expecting, you know, given the, the history of the film and it's it's uh, you know sort of like mythic editing process and all that stuff that was happening. Sort of in, uh, in the Mabel Dodge compound in, uh, in 7071, you sort of expect that the materials will be in pretty rough shape. And, you know, real one was not amazing, but, uh, but the rest of the film was in, was in decent shape. I mean, Craig certainly spent, you know, a good amount, a good amount of time getting in there and cleaning it up and making it look as good as it could. But, um, you know, overall, the materials were in, were in good condition. Now, you guys have already had your screening in Italy. Is that right? Yeah, we world premiered last month at the, uh, the Il Cinema Ritrovato Festival, which was really amazing. Cause, you know, as you know, the film world premiered originally at the Venice Film Festival, where it won the Critics Prize. So it's really nice to sort of have essentially two world premieres that were both really well received in Italy. Italy has been very kind to the last movie over the last 50 years. What was that like sitting down and watching that with an audience? Oh, it was incredible. It was really special. You know, Henry Hopper flew in, Dennis's son, so he was there to do an introduction, which was really nice. And then we, you know, we went up and did our thing and then sat down and, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was a full house. They had to turn away like 50 people at the door, um, you know, and, and you never know because the film remains, I mean, I think it's a radical masterpiece as many people, um, but it certainly remains. It's lost none of its power to be, to be very polarizing. So I wasn't really sure how it would play in the room and nobody walked out. Everybody was, you know, you could hear a pin drop. Uh, and then at the end of the film, there was just a collective gasp from the audience. I've never seen anything like it. It was incredible. It was a really lovely experience. And Henry Hopper had some, uh, had some, had some great stories as well. My favorite of which is when they were editing the film in, in, in Taos, New Mexico. Dennis, of course, had the Mabel Dodge compound and he also had bought the local movie theater where he would, you know, program films during the day and then screen different cuts of the last movie in the evening. And apparently Georgia O'Keefe and her, her crew came to a very early screening of the movie. And, uh, and she stood up about 25 minutes in and said, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen and stormed out. <laughs> Which is just kind of wonderful imagining Dennis Hopper and George O'Keefe in that moment. But yeah, Henry told that story, which I mean, you know, we've been working on this, on this project for about two years now. And so you sort of, you think you've heard everything. And then that was, that was a nice one. That was one that I had yet to hear. Well, what's next for it? But yeah, in terms of what's next for the film, we're going to have our New York premiere at the Metrograph on August 3rd. And then the Los Angeles premiere will be August 16th at the American Cinematheque. And we'll be doing sort of special special guests and events around both of those. And then we're currently in about 35 cities across the U.S. and Canada um, with a bunch more sort of to be confirmed. But uh, yeah, we're getting, we're sort of getting ready for the big rollout. And we're working on a bunch of sort of fun experiential things that will go along with it. Jessica Huntley, who I mentioned, is editing uh, an amazing companion book that's all about the film and the making of it and, and the restoration. And then we're hopefully going to have limited edition chat books of an unpublished Alex Cox essay that's 
absolutely amazing that sort of beautifully contextualizes the film that we'll be giving away at select theaters. We're going to do a bunch of posters, a bunch of pins, just everything we can do to make it uh, make it special. Well, tell me some more of those stories that you heard as you're doing this, and I'm curious who's telling these to you as you're doing the restoration. I mean, a lot of them come from an amazing documentary. Speaking of Alex Cox, he's made an amazing documentary called Scene Missing that we'll be including on our Blu-ray and DVD set, which is great because a lot of the people that he was able to interview, he was producing this in 2012 is when most of the interviews were conducted. Sadly, he was talking to a lot of people who were involved in the film who have since passed away. A lot of the, the, the juiciest stories are, are the ones that I'm sort of caging from Alex's doc. You know, there's the, the famous one of screening the film for the first time for the Universal executives. And from the projection booth in the, you know, sort of in the private Universal uh, screening room, you could hear the projectionist when the, t- when the last movie title mm-hmm. card came up saying, yeah, no shit, this movie's a piece of garbage. This is going to be this guy's absolute last movie. And Dennis jumped up and ran into the booth and started accosting him and they had to, you know, stop the screening. That's, uh, I think that's my personal favorite. Then there's, of course, there's the, the mythic stories of, of the cutting of the film. I mean, I think a lot of that has been sort of crystallized in American Dreamer, the, the Lauren Schiller, Ellen P. Carson documentary, Alejandro Jodorowsky's involvement and his, his mythic sort of 13 hour cut of the film that, um, sadly there's, there's no evidence that I'm aware of of its existence, but uh, it's a good story. One of the things I found out in working on this was the last movie, the screenplay, the idea existed uh, a couple of years before Easy Rider happened. So obviously it was only produced in the wake of that film's phenomenal success, but this was an idea that Dennis had had going back to his time shooting uh, The Sons of Katie Elder with Henry Hathaway. Um, and I think that's another big reason why, at least for the last movie, it is, it is sort of um, it is playing around with the Western because the idea that it's born out of Dennis' experience being, being in the Western. And that film was shot in Mexico, and they left all the sets behind when the production was complete. Everybody went back to L.A. And so Dennis had, had sort of wondered, like, okay, well, what happens now? What happens to, you know, the locals that are just left with sort of the, uh, the you know, these sort of empty sets when, when the Hollywood production is done is ready to go home? You make it sound almost too easy. Like, oh yeah, we got the rights, we got the print, we put this all back together, now we just <laughs> had our premiere, now it's going to roll out to theaters. You just walking on easy street with this whole project? What's going on? Oh, no, not at all. This has been by far the most involved restoration project that we've ever undertaken. You know, both because of its of, of the scope, the reputation, the, you know, um, just everything about it. There's a real, there's a real uh, feeling among the crew working on it that we want to make sure we do this absolutely right. I mean, we do with everything that we do, but there's, you know, we, we take uh, sort of actualizing Dennis's dream of restoring and re-releasing the film very seriously. And so, you know, in the restoration process, like, yeah, there wasn't, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of scenes from the film that were like redacted, you know, other than the ones that are actually supposed to face being missing. But, you know, once you get into the real nitty gritty of it, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of difficulties that come with not having Dennis or uh, Laszlo Kovacs with us anymore. You know, that's, that's, been, I think the biggest hurdle in, in undertaking this project is like what I would do is just be able to sit in the room with them and, you know, have them weigh in on, 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 uh, you know, like color decisions, what they really want this to look like. We're very lucky in the sense that we have the 35 millimeter print that they both supervised before they passed away. So we have a very accurate color reference, um, in undertaking it. But, you know, that's never quite the same thing as having, as having them in the room, you know? And then as far as the audio goes, I mean, was that fairly complete together, just a matter of cleaning that up? So we had, out of, I think it was eight reels of 35 full coat mags, so like the original audio, 
the original audio sort of master. We were missing reel seven. Uh, and then we pulled from uh, from an optical source on that. And I mean, I think it's all due credit to John Polito at Audio Mechanics that like he, I, I think you would be hard pressed to tell when it when it dips into the optical and back out to the mag. But yeah, that was that was also in surprisingly good condition. And then John sort of went in there and, and worked his magic. So it doesn't seem like you're the kind of guy who's just going to wait around for the next thing. You must already have a few things in the hopper. Yeah, I mean, our next big project is Bellatar's Taking Tango. Funnily enough, that also dates back to our earliest days at Cinelicious, and it was a project that my colleague Eito Shinari, who co-produced this restoration of the last movie with myself and Craig Rogers, really championed, and it's one of my all-time favorite films as well. And so our next 4K restoration project will be all seven and a half hours of Bellatar's sort of magnum opus, which is incredible, and we're very excited to be doing it, but as you might imagine, post all sorts of restoration challenges given just the, the, the scope of it. Yeah, wow, that's that's quite a bit to chew off. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting though. It's, we just got the scan from um, from Film Lab in Hungary, and we're very lucky in the sense that the original negative, which we'll be working on off of for that project as well, is in really phenomenal condition. So it might actually be it might be a faster project than we than we were anticipating, which is good news. But it certainly is not without its challenge. Is that going to get a theatrical release? Do you think? Yeah, we're going to do as aggressive a theatrical release as we can. That's sort of a big priority for us with everything that we do. We, we decided very early on to not take a volume approach to our releases. Like we really want to do it very, very specialized, very boutique, give everything sort of the, the attention that it deserves, and we want to give it. And part of that means that we're going to get behind a theatrical release on everything that we do. Well, hey, congratulations with the last movie. That is great. I really appreciate you having us on. I'm a big fan. Up next, you're going to hear from musician John Buck Wilkin, who provided most of the music that you hear in the last movie, as well as a lot of the music that you hear in The American Dreamer. Where did you grow up, and how did you get into the music business? Uh, You haven't done your homework. (laughs) I'm second generation. My mother was a writer and publisher. We're from, like, Texas and Oklahoma. We moved to Nashville in, I think, like, 58, 1958, and she had uh, several uh, hits as a writer, Long Black Veil, PT-109, Cut Across Shorty, and then she was Christopherson's uh, first publisher. He was the one who introduced me to Dennis Hopper in in L.A. and got me on the uh, crew of The Last Movie. It's a book... <laughs> have, have you written it yet? You know, I get about 30 pages in and throw it in the corner. Can you tell me about some of your early work? Because I seem to remember you having, uh, you were Ronnie rather than John for a while. Well, you did do your homework. Yeah. Um, well, it was all, I mean, I was kind of like a music business kid, more or less. And so I didn't pay a lot of dues. I sort of walked in the studio and and recorded GTO and it was it was a hit and uh, well I have to ask about little GTO it is still such an amazing song it, how did you decide to come up with that see the March 1964 issue of Car and Driver had a review of the car the Pontiac GTO and it compared it to the Ferrari GTO and there's a whole story about the evolution of that but Mainly, my mom's partner named Bill Justice, uh, who had had Raunchy, which was uh, like a... That's the instrumental hint, isn't it? 
Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a great song. He ended up being my producer and her publishing partner. So I was uh, sort of under a great umbrella where I could do what I wanted to do. And I'd been in the studio oh, since uh, well, maybe 62 when I was uh, doing some just guitar playing on some sessions. And uh, then Bill said, well, why don't, why don't we make a record? And it was, it was, a, it was more of a kind of just a, for the hell of it kind of a thing. But he, he had uh, some connections at a label in New York called Bell Records. And so, well, we after one or two tries with a couple of dud singles, uh, uh, he, he uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, do a Hot Rod song, GTO, and, and that was a hit. So that's the short version. Were you a big fan of surf music before that uh, Ronnie and the Daytonas formed? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was like a big Beach Boy fan. Sort of who wasn't. The Beatles were just coming out in that time. I guess 62, 64, 65. The interesting connection uh, between me and the Beach Boys was a guy named Nick Benet, B-E-N-E-T, who was a staffer for Capitol Records, and he had signed the Beach Boys, but he'd been down to Nashville several times doing some... uh, Oh, instrumental albums to follow up hit TV shows. They had a way of marketing like the title tune and then whatever else they could pack it with. And, and I got some songs recorded there and, and worked with him. And he hired Bill Justice, the arranger, uh, to work on his dates. And I got to play on some of those. And so he was sort of a, let's say, a cosmic uh, godbrother between me and the Beach Boys. So I loved what they were doing, and I was just imitating them, honestly. They were great, and I still love them. So. Tell me about how Ronnie and the Daytonas ended, and then your solo work began. There was never a real band. There were studio guys and road guys, and uh, whoever the best I could get, basically. Running the Daytona's ended on RCA with a with a Vietnam War song that they didn't want to promote, and so I sort of quit for about a year, and then I went to this producer arranger named uh, Don Tweedy, who had arranged uh, a song called Honey for Bobby Goldsboro, and it was a big hit. Christopherson was writing for my mom, and so the office was kind of full, so I moved down the street. So I didn't have to compete with them. I don't know if you've got family in, in the business or not, but it can be uh, trepidatious. How about that? So I went down the street to write for, for Don Tweedy. Don Tweedy got me on Liberty Records, and he was the uh, arranger producer for, for that project. Then we had a parting of the ways, and I went on a solo and did one solo album, and then I just got totally lost. Uh, as you can do in in Hollywood, when the, the when the numbers are too big uh, for you, and uh, it was a little a little crazy. And rather than fight with people, I just kind of walked away. Do you remember kind of what was the timeline as far as uh, in search of food, clothing, shelter, and sex versus when you're working on the last movie? Um, pretty close, actually. I started writing the, the songs for the album in 68, got most of them recorded in 69, 
And then the last movie was 1970, right on top of, of each other. And uh, since Chris had written for my mom, I, I would just be in L.A. for the hell of it. And I ran into him one afternoon. He said, hey, do you want to meet Dennis Hopper? And I thought, well, sure, this is great. You know, because he was a hero just for what, what he'd done. And uh, so I met him and played him a couple of songs, and he invited me to Peru. And I went down with uh, with those guys. It's it's sort of a, a cult movie to this day, I guess. And a lot of people, I, I love Dennis because he was sort of an artist. artist. He would he would give you your uh, your fifteen minutes of of stage time if if he liked and respected what you were doing. He, he was he, he was a gentleman uh, despite the um, hippie uh, camouflage. I imagine it was the the collaborations that you and and Christopherson uh, were doing with the movie because he in the movie he's constantly singing Mia Bobby McGee and I know that that is a song that was on your first album as well. Yeah, I was uh, living with Chris, uh, sort of as a uh, an apartment mate, if you will. When he was, um, he had quit writing for my mom and was writing for uh, uh, Fred Foster at uh, Combine Music Monument Records, where he got a recording deal. And he was flying helicopters offshore oil rigs, like two weeks on and one week off. So he would come back to the apartment that we were, were sharing at the time. And, and these were hippie days, so it was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, sort of a, a period. But that was okay with me, because uh, I, was, I was out of my mom's house and uh, trying to do some things. It wasn't always that difficult. So it wasn't always that easy. Well, it was nice, too, how you did um, Long Black Veil as part of uh, the album as well. Well, it was just kind of a little homage that happened. Yeah, there was a guy that that needs to be mentioned who sort of hooked me up down there. His name was John Weicker. And and he had a he had a band called Failcat. And John has passed on now, but uh he he helped me a lot in that he sort of helped me differentiate between the the politics of Nashville, which were were too much in my face, and and sort of a a looser well, more blues oriented uh, approach to music, which was going on in uh, Decatur, Alabama, and and some of those other small towns, they they had their own scene. So he was kind of a, a asylum uh, for the for the grief I was uh, going on politically with between Christopherson and my mother and myself and Chris's new uh, publishers, and uh, it can get kind of uh, too interesting at, at that level. So the Weicker offered me asylum and introduced me to a keyboard player named Chuck Lovell, as he's known as Chuck Lavelle, who's, uh, who, who uh, played for me when he was 18 and I was 23, and it was his first recordings. And, uh, and, and he went on to play with the Almond Brothers for 20 years, and, and he's still the keyboard player for the Rolling Stones after 35 years. So, uh, so I got some friends who did it right. Chuck is Chuck is on that uh, on that album. If you listen to me and Bobby McGee, you can, you can hear the piano that that's also on the Almond Brothers, like uh, Highway 41. You know, the sort of galloping uh, piano, and 
Uh, Chuck's a very cool guy. He also runs a, a tree farm uh, outside of Macon, Georgia. Uh, I'm really prou- I'm proud of Chuck for, for doing it right. So going back to the last movie, I'm curious as far as like it had to blown your mind a little bit like hey come on with us down to peru and it, it must have been like well kind of like the movie the wild west down there yeah it was kind of like the ugly americans if you know what i'm talking about yeah there's a lot of stories that that go with that movie um wow um there's a there's a little newspaper here in town like a little tabloid called nashville scene and when hopper passed away I wrote I wrote an obituary for them for him and 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 it tells a story it it tells the questions you're asking now with, with the proper answers I can go into more detail but it's uh I don't know if there's a book on Dennis that really covered that or not uh as far as minutes running time I had more music than anybody else cuz Hopper really liked me and my music and and we we all worked like sort of live on the set uh, with uh, lavalier mics, and and we played most of it live on the set. And I didn't collaborate with with Chris because he was he was his own man and very much a loner. And and I sort of w- was the same. We would just sort of walk around, and uh, if Dennis wanted us to play some music, we would do it. Or if, or if we wanted to volunteer some, he would listen to it. So, so it was, it was very open and a, a wonderful, uh, creative atmosphere. But he was trying to follow up Easy Rider, which, uh, which wasn't easy. <laughs> and, and, uh, there was a lot of drugs and, and craziness. So it, it wasn't a very sane set, uh, but it got done. I was proud to be there and, uh, I still am, I guess. Um, although the, the, the politics has changed so much that it, that it's hard to remember the celebration of that kind of freedom compared to today. Well, there was so much politics around the release of the movie. Did you even get to see the movie in a the theater? Yes, I did. I saw it at the Fox Venice uh, on Venice Boulevard in Venice, California. And I think it was in release for two weeks. It was kind of glorious to see it in the theater, but then uh, Universal pulled it, and uh, it sort of fell in the cracks, and 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 Dennis had to sort of uh, die and be reborn, as far as a, a Hollywood figure is concerned. Did you keep up with him much after that? No, I think once during the the editing, or slightly after, I I, I lived in his apartment in L.A for a couple of months and then he uh, he was living uh, at the ranch in Tahoe's he was sort of doing me a favor and then when he wanted the apartment back I, I cut out but I didn't I didn't chase him like to Europe or to wherever he went I didn't want to bother him it was sort of like we'd met he'd done me a favor I'd given him some music and and then we and we moved on it wasn't a it wasn't a real friendship it was more of a uh, an event which, because of the money, was sponsored and allowed people to get together and show each other their art and then disappear, more or less. So, no, I, I, I saw him once in, in 06 when I was out there 
visiting a, a friend of mine, uh, Jennifer Warren's a singer. And we all went to lunch, and, and this was like maybe three or four years before he passed away. So I, I was glad to see him one more time. Was there ever a soundtrack released for the movie? No. I don't own any any of it. My public Warner Music owns my my uh copyrights. So they'll have to make a deal with them and I guess Universal probably owns the soundtrack. Or I mean they own the movie, I suppose. Or I don't know who owns it, but uh, Universal did own it. I don't know who owns it now, but it's 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 like something that that happily, hopefully will will show up in a royalty statement. <laughs> Yeah, beyond that, I don't have uh, any influence or control. Uh, one guy, let's see, I'm trying to think of his name. Uh, a guy named Nick Ebeling did some movie about Dennis that, that had a lot from the last movie in it, and he was trying to organize that, but I don't think he, he ever did. And I, I had a, like a parting of the ways with him because uh, he was just a Hollywood ego uh, maniac director. You know, I was in that movie, and then I took myself out of it, basically. Uh, it was a uh, fun story at first, but then it was like, uh, he didn't want to use uh, my music, and, you know, so anyway. I was happy that, that he appreciated, like some of my old uh, music, so I encouraged him. You know, we sort of promised to get together, and, and I'm on his Facebook uh, notices, you know. He added a new photo or whatever. <laughs> Eagling and I got along just fine for a while, and then it was sort of like, you know, just just mundane things like he wouldn't pay my plane fare to L.A. and uh, and he wanted to, uh, you know, use this and use that. And then we did some stuff live, like I did some of the songs from the, from the last movie, and then he decided he didn't want to use them. And then he sent me this just awful uh, contract for no money and and no rights to anything and, and i just went you know you're such an amateur why am i talking to you you know so just like well thanks nick but i'm out and and he edited me out and so that's that's fine with me because i i have my own story about the last movie and and, and i was there and he wasn't so it's like okay nick great good show you know whatever you know maybe i need to move on but uh Dennis was was kind to me, and uh, that's I guess that's how you mark uh, your, uh, your your milestones along the way. Something I'm not sure. Well, after the last movie, I you did a second solo album, correct? Yeah, I did one called Buck Wilk, and I was trying to 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 go uh, back into a more rock and roll instead of a folk, uh, but it sort of tanked. Well, I was I was dealing with some people that that didn't know what I was about, and I didn't have anybody to explain it to them. Coming from Nashville, uh, where if you're a writer, you're supported by a publisher, and if you're a singer, you're supported by a label. But if you go to to L.A., you, you need an agent or or something like that to uh, to support you to movies or labels. And I never had an agent, so. Uh, I guess that's the answer to that question. Well, what have you been working on lately? A writer always writes. So uh, journals, uh, a few song pieces. Uh, I've got a thing up at uh, bucky3.com. B-U-C-K-Y, the, the number three, dot com. And, and there's some demos from the last uh, oh, eight or ten years 
up there. Uh, there was a 2015 reissue of Ronnie Daytona's, and uh, when my mom passed away, I I manage her gospel catalog, which includes a song one day at a time, and then I get the income streams from from her old music, which is with Universal, and and my old stuff, which is with Warner <clears throat> Music, and I have kind of an affiliate over in London that likes some of my new stuff, but uh, we haven't done anything yet. So I, I'm I'm kind of a mailbox man. I make a, a living going to the mailbox, and uh, <laughs> you know I always dream bigger, but but who knows? You know I'm, I'm so, but uh, it, you know it's always nice to talk about the past. Next up, we're going to hear from writer Jessica Hundley about her experiences with Dennis Hopper. I am um, sort of a a long time arts and culture journalist. I like to say I'm, I'm a recovering arts and culture journalist because it's something that uh, doesn't quite exist in the same form as it once did anymore. Um, but I started out, I, I grew up in Western Mass and I moved to LA in my mid-20s. I've been here for a long time and I started out doing a lot of music journalism. I had a zine in the 90s that was the music and and film uh, zine in the sort of era of desktop publishing cut-and-paste zines. And I, then I started working for the Boston Phoenix, doing a lot of culture and music writing for them, and then moved to L.A. and started working as a freelance journalist, working for the L.A. Times and the L.A. Weekly and then a lot of magazines as well. I worked as the West Coast editor for Dazed, which is a British magazine for a long time, for The Fader, which is a music magazine out of New York, and started writing basically about film and music and, and essentially writing about the stuff that I loved, which is pretty broad range, but, but I'm particularly fascinated by film and art and music that came out of the mid 60s into the mid 70s i would say that's the sweet spot for me so i started to write a lot about that and i actually wrote a big piece for the la times about graham parsons and cali country and california country music which led to me writing a book about graham with his only daughter and yeah and that's kind of been my trajectory i do a lot of Still do a lot of sort of journalism, but just in a little bit different form. A lot of uh, podcast stuff. I produce a couple podcasts and then still writing for magazines, but then also doing a lot of documentary film work and book work. A lot of print and a lot of visual sort of exploration. So, so what was your zine? It was called Mommy and I Are One, which was a... Uh, a phrase a Freudian psychologist would use subliminally uh, when their patients were under hypnosis to make them feel uh, safe and secure. And it was kind of a punk zine. It, it became actually kind of a nationally distributed sort of more magazine format. It was very focused on music, but we did a lot of interviews with filmmakers as well. And, uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was a great time, and I was sort of part of a larger community of zine makers that included, you know, there's a zine called Ben is Dead out of L.A., and 
one called Roller Derby out of Vermont. And there was a lot of, it's funny, there's a lot of, I had a, a editing partner, Andy Hunter, who's an amazing writer and novelist and teacher in New York now. But um, the, a lot of them were run by women, which was an interesting experience. There was a lot of girls making rad zines in the early 90s. It was cool. We did. We had a lot of fun. We did a tour, a Queens and Zines tour with Vaginal Cream Davis, who's a fabulous uh, drag queen um, hosting. And we toured all over the country and did drag shows and sold our zines at them. And it was fun. But it was amazing in that I got a lot of experience doing interviews, which is something I love to do and got in the thick of it, you know, as far as really like honing my interviewing skills. You know, I interviewed so many bands I loved and artists I loved and filmmakers I loved. And so that was a really, that was a great thing to be able to do that and kind of do it a little bit on my own terms, you know? So tell me about your podcasts too. I'm curious about those. I produce two podcasts right now. And one of them, I actually am not the interviewer. I'm just the producer. And it's um, a music podcast with my husband. It's called Jed Bangers Ball. He's a musician and former uh, A&R marketing guy at Sub Pop. And he started doing interviews with musicians. And it's now kind of become about kind of about creative entrepreneurs and how you make a living doing what you like to do sort of outside the system, outside of the the man. Um, and he does the interviews and I kind of produce it. I help him put together the questions and I help him get the subjects. And then I do another podcast that's about to be launched called Listen. And it's for it's all about sound, people who work with sound. And I do the interviews for that. And it's it's basically anyone and everyone who works with sound in any way from like musicians to sound designers to field recordists to we just interviewed a guy who studies dolphin and whale hearing for MIT to make sure that uh boats and naval exercises to see what you know how they're how they hear and making sure we're not messing up their hearing it was totally fascinating (laughs) so and that's been really cool because it's podcasts are so interesting because as a print journalist I've gotten to interview so many amazing people, and then ultimately what makes it into a print interview is usually only about 10 minutes of a conversation you have with someone. And I really love the podcast as a form where you're really getting to getting to know someone over the course of an hour. You really can learn a lot about somebody, and the listeners get to participate in that in a way that they don't with print. I think it's a really cool form for, for journalism particularly. I could ask you probably a thousand more questions before I even get to the Dennis Hopper stuff, but I'm just going <laughs> to cut right to the chase and ask you, how did you get involved in this Dennis Hopper project? I had done a book for a small publishing company here in LA called Really Great Books. That was a really great, cool boutique publisher. And they had a wonderful editor, um, this woman, Nina Weiner. Um, who I just loved and had a great time working with. And she ended up getting hired by Tashin and started hiring me to do sort of contributing editor positions to the various books, kind of knowing what I was 
interested in and knowing kind of what I would kind of be interested in writing about. So I contributed a couple essays or, you know, kind of consulted on a couple publications with her at Tashin. And then she came to me and said, you know, we have this book we've been doing with Tony Shafrazi, who was Dennis's longtime friend and gallerist. And it's a book of Dennis's photographs from the 61 to 67. And we've gone through like three editors and everyone, you know, has started and then ended up quitting. And, you know, I don't know if it was exactly the details of why, but she said, was this something that you would like to do? And I said, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, I've been a longtime fan of Dennis's and um, I had, you know, I kind of had, had interviewed a lot of people that already that had known him. I had done some liner notes for a reissue label um, for Chris Christopherson reissue. And I knew that Dennis, I had talked to Dennis a little bit for that because I knew he was friends with Chris and um, I knew a lot about him and was very, you know, had talked to him a couple of times for different interviews. So I met up with him and we started working on that book. It was supposed to be a three month project and it ended up being a almost three year project. <laughs> we ended up with, you know, I think what happened was Tony, Tony had gone to Taos in the seventies where Dennis had been editing the last movie and had essentially stolen these photos from from Dennis because he was afraid that Dennis would burn the house down or, or burn the photos or it was at a a period of particular chaos and Dennis's reality um and then kept them in an archive and Tony's an amazing character he you know has a gallery in New York he's you know was key in kind of discovering and promoting everyone from like Basquiat to Keith Haring, um, he's a kind of incredible figure in the New York art scene. And he had kept these photos and then, you know, approached Toshin about doing this book. And Dennis said, sure. And kind of, I think Dennis had been like, oh, it's Tony's book. Yeah, you know. And as he started to go through the images, I think he really felt reconnected to them and sort of saw the value of them and started looking for other photos from that period and ended up very engaged in the project in a way I don't think he had anticipated. Um, so I was lucky enough to be working with him on that and convinced Tashin to do a 200-page bio interview in the back of the book, which is not very common for them. They they don't usually do have a lot of words in their books. <laughs> and so I wrote, I, I ended up spending days and just spending time with Dennis and based, essentially writing a biography with him. It's kind of more of like an extended article almost. Um, it's it's his quote sort of interwoven with my text. And the book came out and there was an amazing show at the Museum of Com Contemporary Art here that Dennis worked on with Julian Schnabel. And about three months before the show opened, Dennis passed away. So he, he, he was, the book I think came out about six months before he passed away. And in that time, I had been talking to him and uh, along with a friend of mine who is a programmer at 
Sundance, Mike Plant, about trying to get Last Movie re-released and do some sort of theatrical tour to accompany it with Dennis introducing the film. You know, Dennis had just gotten the rights back right before he passed away to the film from Universal. And we had been kind of trying to raise interest and money and talking to his agents and trying to figure out how we would do this and restore the film. And then he passed away and the estate, you know, it took a while to kind of, we would knock on the door of the estate every few months over the following years, just because we knew it was something that Dennis really had wanted to do. And so we managed to finally make it happen. So I'm incredibly excited to be talking about it. It's been something I've been trying to push up the hill for a long time, sort of in at Dennis's request. I'm really excited that it's finally going to be happening. And it's it looks beautiful and it, it was such an important piece of of work and of art for Dennis and I feel like it really kind of completes what his legacy that people are going to finally get to really see this movie in the context it was meant to be seen and in the way it was meant to be seen. You talked a little bit about it, but I'm curious as far as like the three months to three years thing. I mean, it sounds like you could probably tell why there had been three editors before you. Yes. Well, Dennis and Tony, Tony is wonderful and crazy. Dennis was wonderful and crazy. And I think, I think the, the book kind of took on it needed to be guided and it needed to be sort of honed in in a way that maybe not everyone had the patience for. I mean, I think I ended up getting paid about five cents an hour. <laughs> um, but I was very happy to be going to Dennis's incredible house once a week and going through his archives and talking to him. I mean, it was just such an amazing experience and I really tried to uh, you know, get every last drop of, you know, knowledge and insight from him that I could just, not just for the book, but for myself, you know, I, re I really saw it as this way to be mentored in some ways, you know, by somebody I really respected. So, um, and I think, I think maybe that wasn't the attitude of the other editors. I was willing to just sit there at the feet of someone I considered the master, let him kind of figure out what the book was kind of between the two of them. Obviously, you can't live on five cents an hour unless maybe, you know, you're <laughs> making shoes for Ivana Trump or something. But what else are you doing at the time? How how did you manage to support yourself? Um, I was still, you know, it, it required me going and, and kind of pushing, pushing the rock up the hill. But it also, in the meantime, I was doing journalism. I was, I was, um, I, I had been running a production company, um, that I'd been doing a lot of documentary and music video directing and kind of running that company as well. So I, I had a, a, a lot of pots in the fire and kind of still do. And that's because that's kind of what you have to do when you want to make weird art in this world <laughs> and make cool stuff happen. Sometimes it requires just hustling on a lot of different levels. So um I was writing for magazines and, and doing some directing work and doing some, you know, branded content work. So doing a lot of stuff, copywriting and stuff like that for brands, which I still do. And that's kind of how I pay the bills. 
while you're there at Dennis's feet, hopefully not literally, but while you're there, what are some of the things that you're picking up? What are some of those things that you think back to the most often? The, the book actually just got reissued. The book, the Toshin book just got reissued. Um, thanks to the estate kind of giving it their blessing. It had been out of print. Um, and Toshin, you know, had made these beautiful books that were just incredible, but also, you know, incredibly expensive. Um, and so it's just come out in a, in a format that's only 75 bucks. So a much more affordable format. And I wrote, uh, a new afterword for it. And then we had a, a release party for it. I kind of spoke about Dennis a little bit. And, and, you know, one of the big things for me was how completely engaged and enthusiastic and inspired he was even at the very end by other artists and by other people's work um, and how sort of open he was. And, you know, there was no kind of bitterness or cynicism you know he he really was always you know i would go over and we you know i remember going over and i had just seen the wrestler and uh he had just seen it too and talking about the wrestler and talking about other films we liked that were coming out or had just come out and talking about a gallery show that had just opened and i really you know one of the things that he had said to me was that when he got when he got hired by Warner Brothers, he was 18, he got hired as a contract player, and he said to himself, while I have this massive opportunity, I'm going to make sure that I always use it to also be sort of feeding my own art, looking around, being cultured, being aware, and I have this opportunity that not a lot of people get, and I'm going to make sure to be curious and be looking, and, and really, that is that was sort of a way, the way that he lived, you know, his whole life. He was always kind of supporting other artists, particularly visual artists and other filmmakers, you know, and I really thought that was, it really was a secret to how vital he was. I mean, got sick and passed away very quickly after he got sick, but until he got sick, I mean, he was going on, you know, motorcycle trips through Baja and directing BMW commercials with British artists and collecting still. And I really thought as a lesson of that sort of engagement and curiosity about the world is really the key to eternal youth in some ways, you know, and really the key to, to his constant creativity and reinvention of himself. I mean, it was very much about being invested in other people's work as well and encouraging of other people's work. So I really, that, that really, stuck with me. Um, something I really respected about him. What's your history with the last movie? Had you seen it before you knew him? I had seen bits and pieces of it. It had kind of been legendary. I had I had gotten and you know, like disc digging in the nineties had, had had gotten a copy of the American Dreamer soundtrack, um, which is the documentary um about him editing the last movie, which Larry Schiller and Ellen Carson made. Um and I loved that soundtrack and I had this, the fold out poster that had, you know, Dennis wandering through the desert with like an AK-47 on his back, sort of bearded and messianic. So I knew about the movie 
probably from my early 20s on. And he had, you know, I was one of the first things I kind of asked him about. And he was in the midst of trying to untangle the insane labyrinth of legality that had taken the film from him when I I started working. And um, he had a DVD copy of the movie, which he gave to me, which I still have. So I immediately went home and watched it. At the time, I was working with some artists in Marfa on the first film festival in Marfa, Texas, and he agreed to, there was a couple sort of worn out prints in circulation, one of which the Alamo Draft House had, and Dennis agreed to come down and have it play at the first Marfa Film Festival on an outdoor screening, Um, and he was going to come introduce it. And he ended up getting a, a job actually with Vin Vendors for one of the last films he did. Um, so he couldn't be there and he recorded a intro for it um, that I recorded like on my DV cam at his house, which will actually be on the Blu-ray uh, coming out. I went down to Marfa with this tape and with his blessing and the, the night that it was supposed to screen, there was this massive windstorm and it basically blew the inflatable screen across the desert (laughs) and it was never shown and since I've seen it a few times at sort of special screenings like that but the film itself had been you know basically really degraded there's really no the art the academy film archive had the negative and it's really the movie that is going to be shown theatrically now is really the, the film that Dennis wanted everyone to see um it really looks spectacular it's laszlo kovacs who shot easy rider it's peru in 1970 michelle phillips looking beautiful llamas <laughs> the whole thing <laughs> i've been kind of looking at some of the test screenings arbalist was the the restoration company and, and distribution company it was lucky enough to um we were able to get in touch with the original colorist for the film who is um who oversaw color for the restoration, which is just incredible. And we also were able to access the original set photographer, Peter Sorrell and access all of his original set photography. So we, we use that as well in terms of matching color. So it really is the original, the way it was originally meant to look. It sounds like you're pretty crucial in connecting the estate with Arbelos. And it sounds like the estate, fortunately, are very open to continuing Dennis's legacy rather than being, you know, somebody who's just like, no, 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 you can't see anything. You can't have anything out of the archives. Yes. Yes. They've been incredibly, incredibly open. I I feel like their main goal really is to ensure that, that his legacy continues. They work a lot of, you know, particularly Marin, his eldest daughter, works with a lot of fashion brands. I mean, I think that Pendleton just did a blanket with the Warhol portrait of Dennis on it, where they're really trying to integrate him into sort of the 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 pop pop culture zeitgeist, you know, and really kind of make sure that people sort of understand his legacy as a artist and as a sort of renegade outsider too and really someone who was pushing boundaries you know um so they've been really open and and luckily dennis you know really kept quite a organized archive even in life and um 
So that archive, we've had sort of full access to this incredible archive, which is, I mean, it's just really the tip of the iceberg. And in conjunction with the film, I've been working on a a companion book. And so that's been incredible to go in and really start digging through everything from like the original script with his notes to telegraphs from Peru, postcards, you know, handwritten cast lists, stuff like that. So it's been really really cool to kind of go in and they've they've given us total totally open and uh welcoming of the project which has been great so i imagine that the book's going to be released with the blu-ray which is set for what november yes we will see if that happens i'm crossing my fingers (laughs) but yes hopefully it will all be it'll all come out at once um and i've been working with an incredible design team here and uh we're basically just trying to figure out how best to raise the funds for it because ideally my hope is that um, the book uh, will be funded through on some level through pre-orders and sponsorships so that any money that's made from it, I essentially I, I'm hoping we'll be able to donate to, to the Taos Pueblo, um, which is, you know, Dennis was very involved with the Pueblo when he was living in Taos. And so, so my hope is that the monies will go towards that. So I've been kind of avoiding working with a traditional publisher or working with a traditional investment. You know, I've been trying to raise funds through people who are interested in kind of sponsoring the book rather than making money because you're basically not going to make a lot of money on a book anyway. <laughs> so, you know, if money's made, I would rather it go to to the Pueblo. So. so you got the podcast, you got the book. You have to be working on, what, at least four other projects at the exact same time? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm working on different things. One of the things that I just finished, which is actually just came out, and I'm hoping is going to maybe um come be reissued is the the American Dreamer soundtrack also just got reissued with through a, a label called Light in the Attic. Um so I did I got to work with Larry Schiller on that and hopefully Light in the Attic will be also, you know, we're still kind of figuring out the legalities. There's a very very tangled web of legalities with the last movie, but if all goes well, Lightning Attic will also be um, releasing the last movie soundtrack, which is features, you know, Chris Christopherson and John Buckwold, and a lot of the same people who are on the American Dreamer soundtrack are going to be on the last movie soundtrack. And to my knowledge, there was a soundtrack prepared, but I don't think that it ever manifested. I don't think there actually is a, a last movie soundtrack that ever got pressed so that'll be that'll be really wonderful um yeah yeah i think that's even in the original press pack where they talk about the soundtrack album and i was like "Uh, i don't Mm -hmm. think such a thing exists right now guys no no and i i'm i'm a pretty deep digger and i'm you know in a circle of real deep diggers and i i think no one i know has ever found it so I'm pretty sure it probably never happened. Or if there was, there was maybe a test pressing that, you know, um, but Dennis didn't have it. So if he didn't have it, I think it probably didn't exist. <laughs> Where is the best place for people to keep up on you and all of your projects? 
Uh, I have a website, which is actually sorely in need of updating, but it's um, it's jessicahunley.com. And then I have my Instagram is where I kind of try to share stuff that I'm doing. I, I produce a lot of events. And I am, I'm actually going to start doing, leading some workshops and I'm working, writing workshops and I'm working on a couple of book projects right now. One sort of big series project, which I, which I can't unfortunately talk about yet because it's not, it's with a publisher that I've worked with before who I love and, and is, but it's not official yet. So, but I'm really excited about it. I am part of a sort of collective publishing company here called Hatton Beard Press, which I've done quite a few books with, which I'm really proud of. And they're doing some really great stuff. And then I am kind of helping a lot of, I'm working with a photographer right now, Andy Nathanson, who's an incredible photographer from the 60s, who actually met when I was doing the Graham Parsons book. And she is producing her own book right now, um, which kind of covers, she was kind of like a Zelig uh, character. She knew everybody, this beautiful, young, smart, badass woman who just happened to have an incredible eye and was really friends with everyone from like Sam Shepard and David Hockney to Dennis to Leon Russell to Marlon Brando. And she took photos of all of her friends, sometimes for you know, was hired to do it. But most of the time it was very intimate. Um, and she has this insane archive. And it's really incredible because it's a very intimate look of that world and also a female uh, lens, which which a female take on that world. Um, and so that's a really exciting project right now. I've just been kind of finishing up production with her and helping her. She's She's hoping to kind of do it all herself and with she's with Morrison Gallery Morrison Hotel which is a great photography gallery that does a lot of sort of music photography from that era but yeah so those are just some of the some of the things trying to create new stuff that is meaningful but also trying to you know reach back in time and unearth the gems that people haven't seen before you know and that I feel are relevant, you know, and last movie is a prime example of a film that is so relevant now on so many levels and also just an incredible work of art that needs to be seen and needs to be out there to inspire, you know, filmmakers and artists who are trying to make crazy independent films now. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate this. Of course. Thank you so much for giving this film the love. I, I, I want people to go see it and uh, experience it. It's it's not for the faint of heart. It's a crazy psychedelic experimental movie. So be forewarned. But <laughs> but it's it's just a, it's it's an experience. Last but not least, we have filmmakers Nick Ebeling and Satya De La Manitou, who are going to talk about Along for the Ride, a documentary i highly recommend nick i'm very curious how you decided to become a filmmaker sir we have to go back to the years of the 1990s when i was a very bad actor i had done a film at afi that was written by mark medoff uh who uh did children of lesser god and i was really into uh acting i was just really getting into film i i i come from la so 
my parents let me see a lot of movies I probably shouldn't have seen at an extremely young age. Like, uh, I was fairly familiar with Blue Velvet by the age of five, which could either be, either be good or bad. In my case, I think it was good. But I had this influence of all these interesting films I had seen when I was young, and uh, that kind of got me into into acting. And I, I just, I wasn't really, I guess I was just feeling like it wasn't going fast enough for me, even though I'd only been at it for about a year, right? So, which is so funny when you think of it now. But I had done some commercials. I had waited around on a bunch of sets. I had kind of started learning. I was taking lessons. And then all of a sudden, my parents take me to Stanley to racetrack. They were in the middle of a reconciliation. And uh, they, they took me to the racetrack. And uh, right in the middle of this great room, that must have been built in the 1930s, I Chandelier. think, called the Chandelier Room, which is this great old Hollywood hangout. Dennis Hopper was standing right in the middle of that room smoking a, a cigar. You know, I had seen this movie, Blue Velvet, and this is around the time that True Romance was just hitting, I think. It was around 92 or 93. I just mustered up all the courage I could get together and went over and talked to him. Because of that conversation, when, when I got home, I, I got on a bus and I went to a place called Rocket Video, which was like the great underground video store at that time in Los Angeles, which is now gone. And I, I found I was looking for Dennis Hopper movies and the kind of the cool indie rock dude that worked there uh, led me to this film, this fake VHS cassette called The Last Movie. And needless to say, I, I took that tape home and it never came back to Rocket Video. In fact, it was still on my credit report as of I think five or six years ago as delinquent <laughs> until I got it erased and paid off all the fines and everything. So yeah, the, the last movie is kind of the reason that uh, I picked up a camera meeting Dennis is the reason I picked up a camera and started making my own films and taking pictures and making art. So how do you meet Satya? I had been so fascinated by this film, uh, the last movie for years, and I hadn't really met anybody else that had seen it. A lot of people had kind of read the Biskin take on things on in easy riders and raging bulls and everybody had a story about it but i couldn't find anybody who actually seen the film and for me it was like the last movie was like this gateway not even a gateway drug i mean it was like going from like zero to 60 and it opened the doors to me liking other filmmakers like anton yoni cassavetes uh godard you know it had this reputation but nobody had seen it and uh, i kept asking people and i was coming back from toronto film festival i think it was 2009 and I leaned over to this producer named Nini Yang Bon Jovi, who did a film called Fruitvale Station. And she goes, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, God, you know, I love this story of uh, Dennis Hopper in the last movie. And she said, well, I worked with Dennis on, on a film, and he actually gave me my start on a movie with, with Al Ruddy a few years ago. And God, maybe we should set up a meeting and, and you guys should talk and meet. Well, Dennis was very sick at that time, so the, the meeting never materialized, which really was devastating for me. And then flash forward about was it four years, 2014, 2015, I had kind of gone off and started doing other things. And I get a call from Nina and she goes, I just got a call from Dennis's longtime right-hand man. And he's like, so incredible. You should really meet him and, and talk to him. And so I was at that meeting in about eight seconds. We were at Musso Frank's, and which, was, which is a great old restaurant where Dennis actually used to hang with James Dean back in the 50s having lunch and saw he was having a seafood salad and I, I was looking at him with a cup of coffee and you know he started to kind of give me the greatest hits of Dennis Hopper and I just looked at him and I said what about the last movie what happened in the 70s and uh that was uh then we we got we went to work pretty much the next week you went to work as far as let's do this project together 
let's start shooting a film. And we, we started shooting a film with nothing, with no money, no budget, just, just favors. Well, what year was that? We started shooting in 2014. I think it was near the end of 2014, maybe. And then we, we showed the rough cut at the Venice Film Festival in 2016. And Satya, what did you think of this guy who was so interested in hearing all of these stories? Well, I was there in the chandelier room at San Anita's private turf club. Dennis uh, never went to the track without me because I'm nuts about the horses. Anytime he went to the races, he'd always say, get me a pass to the private turf club. And this snot-nosed kid was there who turned out to be Nick Evelyn. And I didn't really pay any attention to him because I was looking for a winner. I knew, I knew no 10-year-old kid could help me, so uh, I sort of ignored him. But uh, I'm so happy that that was the uh, initiative propelled Nick into his uh, career uh, as a filmmaker. Later, when Nina Yang Bonjovi introduced me to him, it didn't even come up that we had met when he was much younger. We kind of figured that out as we... We figured it out as we got... But what really cemented our relationship was... I was nuts about the last movie, and I never really ever met anybody that was enthusiastic about it. First of all, because nobody's ever seen it, never been in distribution, and the, and only a handful of people had seen it. Dennis's friends and close associates. There are a few screenings here. Yeah, but there was yeah, relatively few people have ever seen the picture, so it was it drifted into obscurity. But that didn't matter to me. Because that is what uh, allowed me to help Dennis Hopper with his art. Because I believe that the last movie was a great, was a masterpiece. And that it was the edgiest movie I'd ever seen. And I had to help whoever created that uh, masterpiece to uh, keep working. And uh, Nick was as enthusiastic as I was about Dennis's work. And so we... uh, was two peas in a pod. In Along for the Ride, I remember you talking about the meeting of Dennis Hopper for the first time. When was that? Where was he at in his career when you first met him? That's interesting because there's about four or five different versions of where I met Dennis Hopper. One of which was when he lived on Orange Grove and he was going out with this uh, Bruja. Bruja is an Indian uh, that's a witch. She was the foxiest woman I ever saw, so I uh, had to go find her. And um, uh, I went, uh, turned out that somebody told me she was living with Dennis Hopper and uh, on Orange Grove in uh, Hollywood. So I went knocking on Dennis Hopper's door and uh, he answered the door. And uh, I said, is Felicia here? That's the lady I was looking for. And uh, then another version of uh, our initial meeting was at the Hot Springs where Dennis came up with a jar of LSD. And... Uh, that's the one he remembers, right? That, that, that's the one Dennis uh, believes was the first one. The third one was at a, a poetry slam. And there's a myriad, but when you think about it, the 60s, there's a lot of uh, of uh, blown solenoids there. <laughs> As a matter of fact, in yesterday's L.A. Times, there was an article about George Carlin, who uh, was a comedian that I met in Taos in the 60s. And uh, under his picture, it said, George Carlin's daughter, Kelly Carlin, says his work was static until he took LSD. I gave George Carlin his LSD <laughs> in Mexico. And I'm glad to 
the, to, to hear his family say that it altered his career in a positive fashion. There's a lot of versions of our, our initial meeting, and uh, uh, all of them are correct. When did you finally make that connection rather than just kind of two strange ships passing in the night like those odd connections that you made? That- oh, that's easy because Dennis took me to his theater. He owned a theater in Charles called the El Cortez. This would be about 1970 yeah. um, during, during the editing. last movie when they came back. And Dennis said to me, you got to see uh, my film. I said, certainly. We went over to, he showed me the unexpurgated cut of his film, which was about, I would say, 12 hours long. And uh, I just couldn't get enough of it. It was, it was just incredible. And I realized after spending that session with Dennis, I had to work for him. How long did it take him to edit the last movie? Because it seems like from the stories and along for the ride that it took a long time for him to shape it into finally what basically got him kicked out of Hollywood for a while. He's still editing the last movie. Yeah. If I may jump in, Mike, um, you know, it's interesting doing the detective work with Satya and going back and, and looking at the time and, you know, universal was having a heart attack because I think it was about a year and I think they wanted it a lot. You know, they wanted it a lot quicker because they were trying obviously to cash in on, on Easy Rider. And I don't know if you know much about what Universal was up to in 1970, you know, with this unit that they created. They were basically trying to mirror what BBS was doing. And so they created this unit and they, there are a few films that are a part of this kind of Universal's version of BBS hand, kind of headed up by Ned Tannen, Danny Selznick, who's the son of David O. Selznick, um, who's in the film. And, uh, Lou Wasserman kind of was the overlord of this whole thing. And there, there, there's a few films that are made. There's The Hired Hand by Peter Fonda. The last movie is the first film that kicks, kicks off. Uh, Silent Running by Douglas Trumbull. Two-Lane Blacktop by Monty Hellman. And then I think the unofficial last one is, uh, American Graffiti by George Lucas. And there was supposed to be another one with Neil Young and Dean Stockwell based uh, on After the Gold Rush, which which never got into production. So essentially, these guys were trying to mirror what BBS was doing and, you know, kind of cash in on what Dennis had. You know, he had opened the door really for New Hollywood. You know, there's like there's Easy Rider, which is, the you know, was made for no money and, and starts competing against the biggest films of the year. I think it made 30 million dollars that year. You know, the graduates happening, you know, you know, about a year before that. But but so what happens is, is that, that you know, Hopper is an artist. You know, these guys are different. They're a whole different school of thought than these guys that are these suits that are running this, this system. And they, they basically have get, are giving all these guys about a million dollars in final cut. And at that time, which a lot of people don't realize from doing the, the, the look at the history is that a million dollars is like nothing to make a movie at that time, especially for Universal. Those were those their most low-budget films of the year. So um, the fact that this is kind of called the Heaven's Gate debacle is not really true. I have done a lot of research on Other Side of the Wind. And Satya, I'm curious, were you around when Dennis was participating in that? Yeah, Orson Welles. And yeah, I was around. As a matter of fact, uh, Orson Welles was a, a passenger in my uh, limo one day. I was a limo driver when I couldn't uh, find any work. And 
in in theater or uh, film. And I, I one day I took him down to Ma Maison on Melrose, and in, uh, he was w- with this uh, TV psychologist named Dr. Irene Casorla. And uh, she went inside my maison and was in there for about 45 minutes. So I felt um, that she was in there so long, it would give me a good excuse to press the button and open the window and talk to the greatest filmmaker alive, Orson Welles. Because as you know, the protocol with uh, a limo driver is you don't speak unless spoken to. So I opened the window and I said, Mr. Wells, would you like me to go in? Mamezon and get Dr. Casorla. He said, leave that old bag in there. I can't stand her. So I thought he broke the edge for, uh, uh, for me and allowed me to speak to him. So I started to talk to Mr. Wells and, uh, I said to him, I'm trying to make, get this film made. And he said, stop right there, young man, in his most eloquent Paul Maison delivery. And he said to me, Young man, I'm the greatest filmmaker alive, and I can't get a film made. <laughs> and right then I knew that that it was going to be pretty tough for him to finish The Other Side of the Wind or or or, or get anything done. And uh, that proved to be prophetic. Yeah, do you know the, the story about Dennis going to... to a film, The Other Side of the Wind. Do you know Do you know anything about this, Mike? Uh, Dennis thought he had been invited to dinner. And when he got there, there was a film crew. And he kind of didn't really know what was going on. So essentially, kind of the mythology is that is that he had been kind of tricked into appearing in The Other Side of the Wind by, uh, by Orson Welles. There's no owl appear in your movie. He just started filming him when he started eating his pasta. So you talked about the beginnings of Along for the Ride, like, we're going to make this movie, but how do you go from, we're going to make this movie to actually coming up with what you came up with, with the finished product? Well, you know, it was, it was an evolution. We started with nothing. And when you start with nothing, there's only, you know, you either just crash and burn or you get somewhere, you know, that's the great thing about starting at the bottom. So literally what, what, what happened was, is that we both knew that we, we loved the last movie and we wanted that story to be told. And then I also had been kind of amazed so much that, you know, when, when people would give you the short history of Dennis Hopper, they would say he made easy rider and he changed Hollywood and he opened the door for Dick Donovich and, and Rafelson and kind of ushered in the American new wave in the 1970s, all these great films. And I was always like, well, why didn't he really get to make any more films in the 1970s? And why does it only pick up really at Blue Velvet, you know, in, in this history of him? That's like a, a massive gap. That's like 16 years. And there's all this really amazing stuff that I knew about, like The American Friend, which is uh, is in that film. There's this interesting work. Out of the Blue is an incredible movie, but, the, you know, I, I could never find that much information on it either. And I kind of wanted to get into that journey kind of kind of back, you know, from Dennis's exile. And that's how the structure evolved as we were shooting. We always had that in mind, the journey of, of Satya assisting Dennis, you know, from A to B. Inertia is the hardest thing to overcome, whether you're making a film or launching a rocket ship. Yeah, we willed this into, into existence. We just want to take no for an answer. So it sounds like you called in a lot of favors with a lot of pretty famous people. Yeah, we did. You know, I mean, that was a lot of, there was a lot of what bugging 
people. <laughs> it was a lot of uh, right. pushing, also, digging. Also, uh, our crew was very passionate. Yeah. Everybody that was involved in this show got, was very passionate about it. Uh, yeah, basically the only person that got paid on this movie was uh, was my sound man or the uh, <laughs> or or with, with proceeds from my record collection or the or the uh, people that donated images really. Right. Why the black and white? It wasn't just the last movie that inspired me. It, you know, there's a great book that I received, you know, after meeting Dennis a few years later called, uh, what is it called? Uh, Crescent Heights. Uh, 1712 North Crescent. 1712 North Crescent Heights. I don't know if you know this book, Mike. It's Dennis's photos, photos of the 1960s. And, and they're just, it, it's all black and white triax. And they're, they're all really very visually, very stunning, you know, and that's another layer to Dennis, you know, um, we were trying to showcase, you know, you know, there's a difference to that. Not just this, you know, actor with a crazy reputation. He's a great photographer. He's a fine artist. He's a collector of art. He's accepted by by many, many art scenes throughout the world. And, and don't forget, the, the, it's more dramatic to watch a film in black and white. And the only time that there is color in our film is when Dennis appears. So I believe that infused uh, a life spirit into him. Now that he's passed. Yeah, I dig that answer. That's a good one. Yeah, that that was kind of the the thing. And these guys, you know, like Dean Stockwell and Spatia and Tamblin and, you know, David Lynch. I mean, they're kind of monumental to me. And I think we needed to treat them with uh, the ultimate reverence. This story is pretty, pretty damn interesting and pretty important. What's interesting is there's so many different paths that you could have gone down with this story, I mean, it must have taken a lot to just kind of shape it into what it is. I mean, because you do cover Dennis Hopper, the art collector, Satya, the uh, assistant, and the guy on the sidelines. Satya, I love you when you come in and you say, I'm a supporting player in my own life story. It's just amazing. How did you guys decide what you were going to go after? And I'm curious, how was the editing process for you? It probably didn't take a year, I hope. No, we we edited in real time as we were working. Uh, we probably shot three times as much much footage as Dennis did on the last movie. <laughs> it evolved, you know, and I think it 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 just kind of unfolded in front of us, and th- that's really what did it. It was it was our journey, and the things that people would give us, so we'd find, you know, almost like eighty percent of the photos in the film are very rare, or unseen, and a lot of stuff was entrusted to us, and so it, like. You know, a great guy like Ed Rocher would help lead you in a, another direction. And we'd look, Sonia and I would look at each other and be like, yes, yes, okay, that goes there. You know what I mean? So it was like a, that's how the puzzle worked. Did you find yourself going down any weird rabbit holes? I think the unifying spirit was really like, for us, what kept us on track is, you know, what happened, you know, like between... 70 and 1986. And I think that, I mean, there were things, of course, that we wanted to include that, that there was just, you know, that, that we were like, you know, slitting our wrists that we had to cut. I mean, there was so much, even in that time frame, that, uh, that, that we wanted to include in the film. But we had to, deli- you know, we had to deliver a, something that people could, <laughs> you know, that wasn't a 12 hour cut at the El Cortez Theater in 1970, which sounds incredible, by the way. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's really, yeah, that, that's really it. Yeah, it just kind of I, I think it was just an organic process. But we, we kind of had a roadmap by, you know, Satya being there through that period. It's like walking, walking that journey and, and just trying to get as close to it as possible. 
Dennis made a lot of interesting films in the 1970s. You know, things like Crush Proof and Kid Blue and, you know, Last In, First Out, these kind of movies. Were you with him on all of those as well? Uh, I would say 90% of them. But I think the most interesting movie he made during that period was The American Friend with Jim Vendor. Fender's uh, movie was the first German movie that uh, was uh, four-walled in the United States. And thought it was also on tracks as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole kind of lost, you know, what's, what's, what's really cool, which we didn't get to touch on, which is going to be in the, in the book that's coming out, um, is that after the American friend, you know, Dennis was trying to get another film together around that time and Satya and Dennis moved to Europe and, uh, they put together William Burroughs junkie into a screenplay with Terry Southern. And they worked really hard to try to get that film produced in it. And the financing just never materialized. Satya, I have to ask you, when you were growing up, were you a big movie fan? I, was a, I wasn't a big movie fan until my father uh, made me watch The Treasure of the Sierra Madre with Bogart, directed by uh, John Huston. After the movie was over, I said, Dad, that's incredible. Why was that movie so good? And he told me, he said, because it's not formulaic, young man. And I said, what's that mean? And he, <laughs> and he said, there's no love interest. And it went, and he was right, because the movie was about greed, not about uh, romance. Uh, and and uh, it turns out that Dennis Hopper's favorite movie was The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And yeah, which is all over the last movie, you know, with Don Gordon and Dennis, you know, and, and you know, if you'll notice in the in the film, there's a lot of homage to Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So that's really what uh, interested me. And also, my mother made me join the Junior Museum when I was a kid and exposed me to uh, esoteric art like Tantra. And um, I, I I saw uh, Stan Brackage when I was 12 years old. Later, Stan Brackage asked me to be in a film that I made because I saw him at Loyola University where there was only nine people showed up to see Stan Brackage. And I went up to him afterwards because I had an opportunity to talk to him. And I said, you know, I'm surprised that George Lucas and uh, Steven Spielberg and all the guys have been stealing from you all these years are not here, Mr. Brackage. And uh, he, uh, he goes, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm planning to make a movie. And he goes, can I be in your movie? And I then I... I realized these are the kind of people I got to be associated with, passionate individuals that have uh, an iconic view of uh, what's going to happen. If I may interrupt, you know what's kind of funny about this is like Satya and I get along so so much because we got we have a love of fine art, we have a love of experimental film, we have a love of Hollywood movies, and the last movie is kind of like all of that, you know, in in a lot of ways. Because Dennis was really influenced, the the reason that that film is 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 at times very experimental and nonlinear is because of his influence by Bruce Connor, uh, who made a film called A Movie in the late 1950s that that Dennis saw. I think it was at the Ferris Gallery in Los yeah. Angeles. And uh, yeah, so you know, I think that Hollywood sometimes seems seems to forget that a lot of that directing is an art form. And don't forget, Dennis came in at the end of the studio system. In fact, he's probably responsible for the demise of the studio. <laughs> because uh, when he uh, and I were hanging out 
he'd say to me, well, you got your baccalaureate, but I got my baccalaureate from Warner Brothers. They taught me how to uh, drop a horse. They taught me how to knock a guy out. They, uh, I learned how to fence. And that was his higher education. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, Easy Rider was the first successful independent film to make money. And that's what inveigled people like Lou Wasserman to start making independent films. Why did Lou Wasserman lose faith in Dennis Hopper? Or was it just he was so set in his ways? We find this all to be like Rashomon. From hanging with Satya and so many of Dennis's friends, I mean, you know, we we understand, completely understand that Dennis was, you know, partying a lot, like a lot of people at that time. And, you know, there's a lot going on as those as things were changing and those guards were shifting, you know, between the old guard and the new guard that was coming in, which was so important, I think, to American film. I think that those guys wanted to show Dennis that they could control him. And the more they tried to control him, the more he fought back at them because he's not that kind of guy to, to, to lay down for his art. You have to remember that the last movie, he wrote that in 65 with Stuart Stern who wrote Rebel Without a Cog, but it was in his head even before that he had been working on it, you know, for years before that. So this was really his passion project. And when someone tells you that they're going to give you a low budget and final cut, I think, you know, Hopper just wasn't going to lie down for them. He wanted it to be his vision. And the other, you know, the other directors that were part of that, that program, they all had trouble. They all had the same trouble. You know, they wanted to capitalize on counterculture. Uh, they just didn't want to give these guys the freedom. These were the guys that were making Alfred Hitchcock movies and My Fair Lady and, you know, Doris Day films and stuff like that. They had a whole different take on it. And they, they really, those guys were powerful and they ruled with an iron fist. I don't think they were ready for someone like Dennis Hopper. You know, the, you know, incidentally, Mike, you know, they tried to, Ned Tannen tried to shelf uh, American Graffiti. He said it wasn't good enough to be a, uh, a television movie. And the only reason that movie got out, from what I've been told, is because of Francois Coppola went in and, and fought back. All the other films had trouble. Uh, Tulane Blacktop, um, uh, Silent Running, those are all really important films to the 1970s. And uh, so I don't think it was just Dennis. I just think he's the guy that, that fought them the hardest. I know Stern has gone on record to say, like, the movie that we see is not necessarily the movie that he and Dennis wrote. And I'm curious, I haven't gotten my hands on the screenplay. Have you read the screenplay? Yeah, I've read the original screenplay. I've read a co- I've read Stella Garcia's copy with all of Dennis's handwritten notes from Peru up on the set while they were shooting, which appears in the film. I don't know if you'll see that when Paul Lewis says, you know, yeah, we shot what the script indicated. <laughs> you know, some of it is completely on mark verbatim and some of it is totally experimental and i think that this was a time when that was happening you know this is like a john cassavetes era this is like a Godard era dennis was really influenced by all of that stuff and all those filmmakers as well you know when he showed the last movie in in italy uh in 71 he won the top prize that year he won sadok and you know Scottia and David Hopper, Dennis's brother, who worked on the last movie, will tell you that like uh, like Bergman and Antonioni came up to him and yeah. told him how Believe. cool they thought the movie was, and you know, and and so when he came home with that prize, he thought he was going to be vindicated and everything was all the issues were going to leave him, you know, uh, when he got back to the studio and they were going to leave him alone. 
and maybe give the film a European distribution. And they basically fought him harder. They told him that he paid for his award. There's no way. And, you know, it's like, you know, there's all that part of the story, too. And just imagine what that does to an artist to hear that. I'm kind of happy he fought them. Right. Dennis couldn't submit to his women. How could he submit to Lou Wasserman? And Pier Paolo Pasolini tell you you're a great filmmaker. How, how could you go back to Hollywood, to Universal City, and get rejected by uh, the, the suits? Well, especially after a big win like Easy Rider, you know, like, um, you know, I mean, Easy Rider. No, Easy Rider, you know, of course, the last movie is way different, you know, and it, it's it's not the same type of film, obviously. But, you know, sometimes when directors in Hollywood make this second film that not kind of everybody gets at the beginning that they've been wanting to make, you know, if they're artistic piece that they really want to put out there, you know, those films are given a little bit of respect, you know, um, in the coming years. And sometimes they get rediscovered, you know, basically after they screen this thing in New York, the War of Egos went with hyper reality and they shut and shut the whole thing down. And like the Prince just really existed up in Dennis's compound in Taos with the only way you could see it is if Dennis showed it to you or he took it himself to a college to yeah. show it for years, you know? So you're over there like, Oh yeah, Fellini and Pasolini and all these guys, just amazing, amazing guys. Were you ever starstruck when you're meeting these people? He's never starstruck. Let me just go on record. I think that's the key to something. <laughs> the only time I'm starstruck is when I meet a woman. Well, you've met plenty of beautiful women, too. Some of the most beautiful women in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Nick Ray taught Satya about editing. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and when you have been surrounded by brujas your whole life, uh, it's hard to get, get uh, starstruck. There's a magical... Uh, upbringing that you get in New Mexico, and I think it rubbed off on Taos. That's why he, uh, on Dennis, in Taos. That's one of the reasons he moved to Taos. You know, D.H. Lawrence lived in Taos and, and and wrote The Plume Serpent there and a lot of other beautiful... He's buried in Taos, D.H. Lawrence. And there's a special kind of light there. And the Sacred Mountain is not only sacred to the Taos Indians, but all the Indians. So it's really a special place, New Mexico. Dennis and I really reveled in that because everybody was equal in New Mexico. And Dennis really appreciated that because he got this equal treatment there just like I did. The one thing that I always feel when I watch The American Dreamer and parts of Along for the Ride is it feels like that time in Taos was magical, to your point. It also feels like it might have been a little bit dangerous with all those guns there. Did you ever feel like you were in danger? A lot of people think that the guns were there purely because of this cocaine cowboy outlaw thing. And that's part of the story, too. But what I learned, because I had seen The American Dreamer for, for years and had been studying that to try to glean any kind of info I could off of it, was that the locals wanted to kill these these counterculture people that were up there. And that these, Dennis literally, you know, armed a a, uh, a gang and brought stuntmen up there to, to kind of uh, stop hippies from being beaten up and attacked, you know, that we're, that we're all kind of moving up there seeking. And that's a part of the story. The Reverend Salazar, a local uh, demagogue in northern New Mexico, started this organization called STOP. And that's an acronym for 
society to preserve our property, you know? Yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit Trumpian. Over the top. Dennis started this uh, CB uh, station, and he got everybody uh, my, uh, CB uh, equipment so that uh, he could uh, have a headquarters. When there were problems, a bunch of stuntmen showed up and uh, tried to protect some of these women that were being, just because they were nude didn't mean they wanted to get uh, raped. And just because the guy had long hair didn't mean they wanted to be castrated. So there was a lot of uh, neg- uh, uh, negativity that had to be dealt with. And uh, sometimes you got to meet strength with strength. And, and, and Dennis was uh, up to the test. Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting story about that when Jack Nicholson was up there during the editing of the last movie, um, with all the guns up in the editing room. Yeah. I mean, like the editors were, were armed while they cut at the, at the Mabel Dodge Luhan house. Beauty kind of counterbalance. You know, there's this light and dark up there that's, that's also happening. And now, you know, when you go to talks now, there's, it, it, you know, those guys changed a lot of stuff up there. And, and, and it's a very kind of net now it's like a lot of, you know, places where you can buy soap and uh, Native American art, and it's really nice and pleasant up there. One but, thing about right. Charles is yeah. that the Indians, the local Pueblo Indians. Well, that's the key to the whole place. They took yeah. us in, and by that I mean the beatniks, the hippies, the long hairs, whatever you want to call them, countercultural people. They called us uh, the lost tribe. They regarded us as a tribe like the Cheyenne or the Sioux or the Comanches. And tell us good morning, who is my peyote grandfather. He was the first Indian to uh, embrace the hip beatniks that had invaded the place. Don't forget, Taos was always an artistic community. Yeah. yeah. And going back, going back to, to the, the turn of the century. Because yeah. Alfred Bierstadt and uh, Burning House and George O'Keefe Paul Strand, they were all there. And that all kind of went down at the house that Dennis restored, the Mabel Dodge. Mabel Dodge Lujan, the house that uh, the the woman who uh, originally owned the house that Dennis Hopper bought, put the money up for the armory show in 1914 uh, at the 69th Street Regiment Army in in Manhattan. That was the first exhibition of abstract art ever in America. and in that show, Marcel Duchamp exhibited new descending a staircase, an abstract painting where, where you could not discern any nudity, but it was banned. So Hopper kind of brought the gang, he brought the gang kind of back and, and kind of reinvented a lot of that. The scene that had been so important to America in the 1900s and brought it back to prominence through the 70s and 80s. What are your feelings about this new restoration of the last movie? And finally, more people are able to, to now see it. We can't tell you how happy we are that the last movie has been restored and it's getting a second look. I mean, for Scotty and I, I mean, it's it's incredible. Very gratifying, Mike. And we're just happy that, uh, you know, people have gone out and, and put this together and now it's going to make the rounds. And I, mean, I might add, right up to his death, Dennis Hopper could not walk down the street in Europe without being besieged by paparazzi. It was a tsunami of photographers and reporters would hit him every time. But but also, you know, I think it's important that people know that, you know, Satya will speak to this as well, is that Dennis uh, was most proud of the last movie. He thought that was his greatest artistic achievement overall of his medium. So the fact that, you know, this film is actually getting its first release, really. 
you know, I mean, it's had a few little things here and there, but nothing like this. So I can't wait to see it. I haven't seen it yet. I'm really looking forward. I don't want to make you toot your own horn, as it were, but do you think that Along for the Ride had a good piece of helping the last movie finally get out? Well, you know, I think it was the effort. It was like a collective consciousness kind of thing. There, there were a group. We've met them now that we've made this movie or during making these movies, but we're like part of a like a, a cult, right? So like we're, you know, like how Clash fans are, you know, across the world. It, it kind of has has been like like when you love a great band, you know. We we've been finding, meeting, talking, and I think every little bit, everybody has kind of contributed and brought awareness, and we it was all really on the tip of our. Our, our tongues and and that was really the mission for Sot United that kept us going that maybe it would there would be enough questions asked to to help uh get this film seen. Tell me about the book project. There's been so many questions since we've made this movie. Since it's been out for about under a year now. There was so much that we filmed and so many things that we found that we were approached to put together a book by a great label in Los Angeles called Hat and Beard Press. They did uh, the Slash book. Uh, Hunter Thompson book? No, Slash magazine. They didn't do Hunter Thompson. They did, um, there's a David music of David Lynch, but it's just a very incredible book publishing imprint. They did Belladonna of Sadness. I don't know if you saw that book or not. And um, they became really big supporters of this film when we were in production and, and, and a part of that story. And so they approached us to do a book. And it's basically... A lot of the cutting room floor material stories that we really wanted to have in the film and a closer examination of some of the photos that we uncovered. I mean, we probably uncovered 5,000 unseen images from the last movie or rarely seen images, you know, stuff from the American Friends. So there's contributions by like Cecil Beaton, Douglas Kirkland, Robbie Mueller's personal set Polaroids from the American Friends, which are really great. Um, Linda Mann's personal pictures from, from out of the blue. There's just a whole collection so people can really look at this stuff and, and, and read some more stories about what, what these guys were up to. And when is that going to be available? It's supposed to be out. When is it? It's supposed to be out end of summer. Yeah. Got the soundtrack LP too. Yeah, Jonas Sound. The sound mix is amazing. I rewatched the movie today with headphones on, and just the sound of the the thunder in the clouds sounds so great. It's just really filled my ears. Oh yeah, you know that all is that's the way it all went down up there. And uh, when we got to that mountaintop, I mean, it was, and, and we were shooting up in the um, up in the hills in Chinchero where Dennis shot the last movie. You know, the first person we met when we got out of the truck up there. Um, was uh, we found Dennis's guide. Yeah, and there's a thing with him that'll be in the book too that didn't make the film. But yeah, the, the that lightning happened while we were shooting and that funeral procession just came by while we were shooting. It was very, I mean, I think it, it gave us chills while we were shooting up there. I know that there is mention of Dennis seeing El Topo while uh, he was making the last movie or while he was editing the last movie. And I know he met Hodorowski. Sachi, did you ever meet Alejandro Hodorowski? Yeah, Hodorowski. Uh, yeah, I met him. And uh, too many cooks spoil the soup. I think uh, that may be a cliche, but I think it's applicable here. Th- uh, there should be one uh, vision to edit a film. And I think uh, 
then it's having been exposed to guys like Nicholas Ray and Sam Fuller and uh, Francis Copeland, all these famous or, or infamous people uh, that he was respected highly. And when you get a piece that's so personal, like the last movie that you've been working on, a passion project, that he might have had it for 30 years before he really was able to execute it. And I think um, Dennis was a brilliant filmmaker, a great artist, but it was difficult under those circumstances for him to be a great editor. Luckily, I think uh, the Cinema Retrovato uh, copy of uh, the last movie will vindicate him and and show that his vision should have been and does show his greatest work. You guys have the book coming out. You've got the soundtrack. You have the movie itself. Is there a need anymore? Do you Are you going to be doing physical media versions of it to have the extras and all those things as well? The book is uh, going to come with a Blu-ray or a, or a download. I think you, you choose. And then um, we're working on a expanded edition, which we're – I don't know. Are we allowed to talk about that yet? Yeah. <laughs> we're working on it, but we're, I can say we're working on an expanded edition. Okay. We're, we're, we're working on an expanded version that, that should have a lot of those things you talked about with some extras. Well, what's the next project for you, Nick? You know, I'm kind of just kind of just taking a break and enjoying all of this, watching all of this unfold. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple of things we have rolling around, but we'll, we'll see where the path takes me. And how about you, Sadia? What are you working on now? Maintaining. Guys, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Hey, thank you so much, Mike. We're, we're honored. I'm very happy to do this. Before we get back into things, I want to play this clip from the Merv Griffin show, where it is Dennis Hopper talking a little bit about the last movie. This is definitely after the universal dust-up that happened after he finally turned in his version of the movie. And you can hear that he is not very happy about the way that his career is now set to proceed. Few filmmakers have had as large an influence on the style of today's motion pictures as my next guest, and he did it with one film, his first, Easy Rider. His second effort, entitled The Last Movie, has just been released, and I'm sure audiences are very curious to see it. Here's Dennis Hopper. I mean, you're a big filmmaker now. You should have a certain day out on the golf course. I was a big, big filmmaker. (laughs) Have you hit bottom? No, I hit the top. I mean, like, I'm out here doing my movie, you know, trying to sell my film, and... We're all trying to do, get our whatever. And, like, it's sort of pathetic, I think, you know, in a strange way. I got raped, bleep. I got whatever. In the green room just know. now? <laughs> oh, I wish in the green room. Oh, in the green room, I could take it, you know? I'd be more than willing, you know? Okay, I'd like to tell you about... <laughs> no, I, uh... Hey, I just, uh, Are you, you in know... in bad times, Well, I, I thought you, know, you were... Uh, let I... me tell you, I, like, I'm on a sort of personal trip like we all are, and we're all on our own trips, and, uh... I made a film, you know, I made a film called The Last Movie. Can I tell you what I've heard about it? Yeah. From actors (laughs) who I respect. They say it is a masterpiece and that they have seen it and been uh, confused by it. But then uh, during the the week following, have thought about certain things from it and have almost realized situations after they've left the movie house. Does that make any sense to you? They crawled out. 
No, no, no. Uh, yeah, it makes sense to me because, like, it's it's really a difficult movie. I don't really. I, I'd rather not talk about it, really. Like, you know, I won Best Film in Venice, which has been a dream of mine all my life. Well, don't talk about it. And okay, well, I just, you know, just talking about a dream. Then we can get out of this and talk about something. We can just rap, you know. But like, uh, I won Best Film in Venice Film Festival, which is like, you know, something that I dreamed about since I was a child. Since I was more affected by European directors than I wa was by American directors because like you know I'd seen them like get batted out of the park so to speak and uh, and I felt that that's where it was at and uh, I won that uh, festival and uh, yet nobody wants to see my second movie even though it's a complicated difficult movie and I have a lot of new kind of cutting and new kind of areas and new kind of involvement and so on uh, I think it's a simple film and uh, you can't ask people to go see movies more than once or twice or three times but I figure on the third viewing of this movie which you know if it was free it'd be great but uh, since it isn't uh, it's hard it's a hard movie hey that's enough for the last movie and like you know Peter Bogdanovich has a great film out called The, called the Last Picture Show which I think is a great movie too and uh, so well, I hear your movie uh, the critics were a little rough on you in New York, yeah, in Europe, uh, they said it was the best film ever made in America, and right. that kind of thing. And uh, the last American to uh, win the award that I won was uh, Buster, Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. Uh, you know, but anyway, like, that's enough about my movie. No, 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 don't force me. I want to talk about oh, it. Oh, oh, my God. Isn't it? Is it I'm not going to talk about football or baseball or something. Is it not making, uh, uh, is it not having the success you hope for? Well, it's not having any financial success, uh, but... Uh, your first movie, uh, Easy Rider, uh, cost what, about $350,000? It cost $420,000 finished, and this cost uh, $980,000, almost a million dollars. Did you find that having more money helped your work? Or? Well, I had to go to Peru. Uh, if I'd made a film in this country, I'd made it for the same amount of money, but I went to Peru. We had to bring all the uh, materials in there to build a Western set in this uh, Indian village, uh, and uh, we had to bring all of our equipment in there, and... Uh, Film. They had no cameras. We had to bring everything in, so that cost the money, really. Is Universal Pictures pleased with it? No, they hate it. They think it makes fun of business, and uh, making fun of business is not the right thing to do because, like, you know, you don't make fun of business. Uh, business is in bad enough shape as it is. You could have tours, you know, and you could have glass sound stages where people watch people make movies, and uh, it's pretty much the same old thing. I'm not going to be discouraged. I'll simplify my, my act. You know, because I want to communicate to people, and I want people to see my movies. I'd be making little 16-millimeter movies or 8-millimeter movies, and I'd be showing them in back rooms for my friends, you know. But, like, you know, uh, I, I wanted to go for the big thing and cope with the corporate structure as it was, which I didn't agree with and I don't like. But, like, you know, I, I'll fight them. you take him. money from the corporate structure. Yeah, because I want my films to be shown. I want it to be yeah. distributed. The only thing that's holding any back is your money no distribution. Uh, Easy Rider, all the money you made mm. on that. Well, like, uh, I made $650,000 on Easy Rider last year after my 7% of the film, and 78% of it went to the government. That's not uh, and then too much fun. you your distribution, huh? Then when all of distribution, the government Well, 78% you know, well, couldn't go to the government, not if you have a business. The most I don't can... have a business. I got a salary. Come Are you on. pleased with the end results of your picture? I think, you. I think my movie, uh, personally, like, you know, and uh, everybody says I'm on a giant ego trip, I think it's like, you know, uh, one of the most important films that's ever been made in America. And, like, I'm not sure that anyone's going to go see it. And I can't blame that on myself. And I will simplify my work. 
you know, to like, you know, so I can please, not please people, so I can uh, like become a social critic again, you know, so that people can understand it and follow it, as they did an easier rider. But uh, I feel the film will take care of itself in time. I feel it's a classic film and that it will be around as long as there are films. Now, you give us I don't idea? consider that an, an ego trip, but like, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about it. But I do feel that the public is way behind in being educated in new forms of film. And I feel we're going into the, out of the uh, uh, 1930s, which are the 1960s, into the 1940s, which is the 1970s, which are romantic, sentimental films. So I just made uh, uh, whatever would relate back to that, whether it's Citizen Kane or whether it's Grapes of Wrath or whatever. And like, you know, it's a social protest film. And I'm going to go on being a social critic, but I'm going to have to simplify and romanticize and sentimentalize my work so I can identify with an audience. How were you difficult in the old days? Did you do marvellous difficult things? Which area do you want to get into? <laughs> I'm Satya Delamonitou. For decades, I was Dennis Hopper's right-hand man, a.k.a. El Hombre Indivisible. Dennis affected world culture. The star, the writer, the director. Everything he could be, he was, and he is. In the 70s, we were partying. Dennis was regarded as a notorious disruptor in Hollywood. Ah, script, man. Just a blueprint. God, look what you did, Dennis. <laughs> He'd been blacklisted. He went into a downward spiral at that point. I had to make a decision whether I was going to keep getting drunk at parties or whether I was going to make a movie. And then came Dennis Hopper, who did not know his lines, but was right on and damn good. Dennis and David Lynch, how would you characterize the way they worked together? Famously. He was absolutely perfect. He was he's so ingrained into the world of art. You could take this guy to Harvard and give a lecture, right? The crazy man of Hollywood. and we were talking about the last movie and I just have a real dumb story to tell before we get back into the discussion because one of the things about this movie was that they shot this in Peru as we've mentioned several times and they say that there were so many articles being written about it while it was being shot they say that the elevation where they shot it was 15,000 feet now I went to Pikes Peak a few years ago which is 14 thousand feet 14 100 something and obviously i wasn't at the very top of pike's peak but i was pretty close where this train takes you up there i don't know if you guys have ever experienced altitude sickness but that was 
the most high, literally and figuratively, that I've ever been. I just was fucking wasted walking around. It felt like the entire floor was at an angle, and I'm just kind of moving along, like feeling like when you get really high or drunk and you're just like, I hope nobody notices. And it was the entire crowd, the everybody up there was like that and we're just so even without the rampant use of cocaine and a little marijuana and and tons of, of booze and everything i'm sure that so many people were fucked up even on the train ride back down i was sitting there and and we're going back down and everything and there was a girl in the uh seat uh, across the way from me and at one point she just slid right out of the seat onto the floor because she was just so fucking messed up <laughs> so i can't imagine making a movie anywhere near 13 14 15, feet i can't imagine what it was like doing that talk about weird conditions well, they, they, t- they showed you how to, to to solve all those problems massive amounts of cocaine <laughs> <laughs> Gets rid of that altitude sickness right away. <laughs> Just levels you right out. I think clearly we now know that we need to organize a screening at this uh, of this at 15,000 feet somewhere, don't we? <laughs> we'll do it. It'll be like those, you know, the those secret underground cinema things where you have to climb the mountain first. <laughs> then you have to go out into the wilderness and feed yourself, find drugs, start a cult. Then we do the screening, and anybody who makes it through the night gets to be, I don't know, the status hopper. <laughs> yeah, you get to be ritually killed at the end. You get to become Billy. So a few years ago, before, I don't even know if it was before the last movie was available on VHS. I think this might have been afterwards, but I was looking for a copy of The American Dreamer because I had heard about it for so long, and it was just MIA. Couldn't get a copy of it whatsoever. And then someone, and I won't say who it was, but someone sent me a copy because they're like, oh, this guy came into our place. Sorry to be uh, shady, but I'm just going to be that way anyway. This guy came into our place with a 16 millimeter copy of the American Dreamer and wanted it transferred. I know that you were looking for this, so here's a copy of it on DVD-R. So I was like, oh, okay. So I... I watched The American Dreamer even before I watched the last movie, and it was a horrible print. It was all pink and everything, but it was still, you know, just it was like watching, you know, uh, something that you shouldn't be watching. And my goodness, it's almost like with the last movie, there's almost more written about the last movie and documented about the last movie than the last movie itself. I mean, it's a, you know, an hour and a half or so, and here we have all of these extras that uh have been produced throughout the years including the american dreamer though the american dreamer they don't spend as much time on the last movie as i thought that they would moreover it's it's almost like dennis hopper's bath time i've not seen the american dreamer since i saw it in the the double feature with the last movie about 10 years ago but i remember getting to the end and not really realizing that it was about the editing of the last movie. <laughs> like much as much as like you can watch the last movie and miss that the main point of the film is that someone dies. You can watch the American dreamer and maybe miss the fact that he's editing the last movie. I remember just being a really spaced out 
film. It's such an odd little text that even just having it in my head as this faint, weird memory feels right. Um, and it fascinated me later to find out I was directed or co-directed by L.M. Kit Carson, who would write or co-write Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is, again, another really interesting metatextual connection. Of course, Dennis Hopper would be in that. But, that yeah, this sort of that that uh, the apocalypticism of Texas Chainsaw and the American West. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely you, the, you get an idea about why the last movie is the way it is from the American dreamer. <laughs> Talking about the, the whole bath time element, the first sort of real scene of the film is Kit Carson and Larry Schiller arriving at, at the Mabel Dodge Lewin house in, in Taos where Hopper was living at the time. And like Hopper is like half dressed and, you know, about to get, get into the bath and they just walk in with him and like they go into the bathroom and they just like stand by the bath as he's like getting into the bath and he's kind of like okay so this is what that's going to be and he's like clearly game um and it's it's fascinating because like hopper has a co-writing credit on this film like it's it's written by hopper larry schiller and, and kit carson and you know the, the the very idea of a documentary being written and that you having you know like you know edited sure but written is like he is the author of this film he is like the voice in it, like they put a camera on him and they said, like, what are you going to do? And he's like, okay, well, this is what the movie is. I'm going to make the movie in front of your eyes because you're, you guys are not going to do anything. I think it's a fascinating idea. And it was sort of replicated somewhat recently with this, uh, Nick Cave documentary, 20,000 days on earth, where again, like there, there is this thing of like, this is not a regular documentary. We're, we're taking this to a different sphere. And like Nick Cave has a, has a co-writing credit. So it's, it's the thing of like, he's authoring his image in this film. And it, it is so much more about, about him that it is, is about the last movie it's it's about the craziness it's about you know this this whole dysfunctional messiah thing that arose around him you know he talks about going to visit uh having just been to visit manson and and i i spoke to kit carson when he was still alive and larry schiller talked about this as well that basically after he came back from from talking to manson he was like channeling manson and it's it's so strange in the film because he talks about him as this kind of as this sort of leader, as this sort of visionary person with this respect. It's like I went to visit Manson, you know, like he had some answers. And I think that people were looking at Hopper the same way. And I, th- there's a lot of bluster there. You know, he didn't really believe that he ha- had a lot of answers. He 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 wanted to, but I think that his best expression was always through through film. It wasn't through bullshit. Yeah, I think that that's actually one of the reasons why this film in particular, but also his other, the, the Out of the Blue and Easy Rider have still stand pretty strong is because they don't try to pretend they have answers or meaning or even though he is playing out these kind of messiah complexes, they're messianic in that he's being forced into the position more so than he has answers. And I think that that kind of that keeps it alive because you look at a lot of these kind of hippie cinema of this era that thinks that like it was one of the producers on this was um, a producer on Silent Running, and as much as I love Silent Running, it's also like calm down, you bloody hippies. <laughs> um, and these films don't have that. And I think that the what I remember taking most value from American Dreamer was that it was this. Uh, first-hand account, not only of a, a great artist in turmoil, but a great artist at doing everything he can at procrastination. 
And and seeing someone like Hopper in full procrastination mode is a, a film in itself. It's certainly a lot to be observed and pondered there. Yeah, after a while, I really get sick of hearing his voice. And this movie is like 90% Dennis Hopper talking. And it's just like, after a while, you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake. For fuck's sake, just shut up, please. That's the procrastination and the self-doubt. you got to cover it up and keep it, keep, keep the noise up so nobody notices. Watching it again, particularly in this moment that we're in right, right now, like the sexual politics of the film uh, and, and also of the last movie, for that matter, are just like kind of repugnant. You know, the, the, the way that, you know, the, the sort of like just deeply felt misogyny that, you know, the, there's this girl, Margaret, who he's he's talking about who's right there and he says you know uh she she arrived the day after michelle left and i just looked at her and the first thing i had to do was to to steal her virginity and it's just like oh my god it's just you know the yeah the violence in the last movie as well it's 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 really like it's basically sexualized by the by the julie adams character she's like oh you hit her oh you naughty boy oh that's that's very bad and it's just like you know, there there's maybe some sort of small level of commentary on on that, but but it just feels. Uh, yeah, I've, I've never heard a positive story about Dennis Hopper and a woman. I'm surely they must exist, but the, there's some. You know, that they just he definitely was stuck in the middle of all that horrible uh, Hollywood misogyny, and and also and then the, on the Manson thing, like. Um, uh, a great sort of bonus feature or backdrop to this film is listening to the um, You Must Remember This podcast series on Charles Manson's Hollywood because that frames this whole era in this way of just how overt the misogyny was and how much it was designed to, you know, the whole sort of sexual revolution designed to get men laid kind of thing and how Hollywood, you know, just across the board was just, this was just normal, you know, and you hear about like, how you know some even someone like Angelica Houston is very accepting of what was going on with Polanski and Nicholson and all that kind of thing and and was there in the middle of it and still like not reacting or anything and I think that this film definitely when you sort of put it in that context of something like the Charles Manson's Hollywood series it's like oh yeah it all it all makes sense that you can just see that it's just just an obliviousness to it. If, if not an obliviousness, then are trying to justify it, like as you said, by having her being like, oh, you hit her, you naughty boy, of like trying to say, oh, well, it's okay if she thinks that it's sexy. And, and yeah, it's, it's, I don't want to say that it's fortunate that it's not more in the film because that sounds like I'm trying to ignore what's going on. Not. Um, I just think that it's it's such a horrible area, and I don't think Hopper is the person to be talking about it or trying to address it. And so I think the films sort of, yeah, they present it, and they present it without necessarily a lot of judgment either way. But yeah, now it's just like it's 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 gross. Like, and, and it's good that it's we see it as gross. There's no other way to respond to it. It's just another part of the whole sickness of this character and the culture and the film that it's just the abuse and degradation between the two genders um which again it reminds me a lot of um peckinpah's uh, alfredo garcia of that kind of uh, the way that it plays out uh, in that between warren oates and um i can't remember the actress's name yeah anyway um, which interestingly also has Christ christopherson in there i think as one of the rapists if memory serves 
Yeah, that story, it, it's one of those things with Dennis Hopper. I never know how many times he actually told a story or what's being reprinted because, you know, I, I put together, I don't know, 200, 300 pages worth of stuff regarding this movie. Sometimes just like, you know, little references to it and stuff. But when it came to distilling everything, it was a lot of the same stories being told over and over again. And it seemed like it was just like, well, we don't really have anything fresh. So let's reprint something and just kind of give it a new spin. And he would tell this story about Michelle Phillips and, uh, Oh yeah. She said that I handcuffed her and kept her at the house. And where did I get handcuffs, man? I don't have handcuffs. Uh, I did punch her out. And I think that's supposed to be like the punchline literally to mm-hmm. his story. But then it's just like, what? You punched her? That is the most horrific thing I've heard. And then, yeah, when he, uh, the character Kansas, beats up Maria in the film, it's just like suddenly I was 100% against this character. So it's just like, oh, yeah, you can't do that and be forgiven in a movie, in my opinion. So I'm just like, okay, yeah, I kind of hope you die. And I don't think we were supposed to see that. I think we were supposed to be like, oh, yeah, Kansas is taking care of business, and how dare Maria do this stuff to him. But as soon as you lay a hand on a woman, it's just like, yeah, no. I know, again, going back to the Elvis Presley story, like, this isn't real and all that kind of stuff. But when your character does that, it's just suddenly I turn against your character. I just can't support a character who abuses a woman. So, you know, and then, yeah, when Hopper as Hopper-esque, you know, like, because I think Dennis Hopper is playing Dennis Hopper in The American Dreamer. When he's there on the phone and like, you know, get us some chicks, man, bring us some broads around here. And it's just like, wow, it's just like ordering, you know, pieces of meat to be delivered to. Yeah, this is one of the songs in the film is I forget what it's called, but but this line that is repeated endlessly is like, you know, if my if if I had two women and my buddy had none, it's like then like I'd give my buddy one of those women. And it's just like, like, what? What? like you're like women are just right. objects and like i have two women so i'm gonna give you one because yeah it's it's really unpleasant <laughs> yeah and it was so just like you know we, we, all, everything that's been happening in the news lately and how much people are talking about it now and it's like yeah this is it was worse back then like it was because it, it was a lot more normalized you know it was this, the violence against women and controlling them and uh, treating them as a commodity is just so present. I mean, I've got a, there's a great book from that era called um, The Sexual Politics of Meat. And they, there's a whole chapter dedicated to how advertising literally turns female bodies into slabs of meat. Grim as fuck. Uh, and that's, this, there's a lot of that present here. You know, Hopper did himself a favor by keeping it to its brief moments so that he doesn't get the film bogged down in it. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, we've heard stories about Hopper. He was a massive alcoholic and a massive drug abuser, and he definitely did lots of very bad things in his time. There's no excusing that. And you can't separate that out. Just as I said, this film, you know, yeah, you can, you can just approach the film as it is. And it certainly allows that, but there's so many meta textual inroads to this film that that's one of them too, that you're forced to look at these people who are just abusers for the large part, who are just trying to get ahead for themselves or to make it or whatever. And they do climb over people to do that, both male and female. Yeah. It's certainly, I think that the whole of, I don't know that there's, many new Hollywood films at all that have particularly good gender relations. It's a, it's a problem that that whole era has. And yeah, it's definitely, you know, the, the classic led by these, these 
white males who are just oblivious to anything else, and Hopper was perhaps the most oblivious of all. Did you guys get a chance to see Along for the Ride? And if so, what did you think? I saw that, and, and I really enjoyed it. It's a period of Hopper's life I'm really fascinated by, this kind of lost, like the time between the last movie and, and Blue Velvet when he was... I mean, I, I having read a lot about it, I, I feel like his exile was somewhat self-imposed. I think that... You know, he'd made so much money for for people with with, with Easy Rider, and he was still such a, a cultural icon um, that you know it was really, in large part, his decision to stay in Taos and to just be paranoid and take a lot of drugs and drink a lot and 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 get a lot of semi-automatic weapons and and possibly start wars with with um, the locals. But I I, th- I think that was easier than facing the fact that he was going to have to go back and and sort of possibly be courteous and compromise and and be more diplomatic and all this kind of thing so i th- there's a lot of dark periods and 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 having satya dilamanitu as as this sort of guide through that period was was really uh, fascinating there's a lot of stuff that i think is really not not at all known about about hopper from that time and and um instead of as as hopper's right hand man dilamanitu was like the, the perfect person to to tell that story it starts off almost as a documentary about the last movie and then moves into those days in the wilderness. And I love the stories from Mad Dog Morgan. I, I absolutely am fascinated by all of those tales, which is great. And then there's so many movies though, that he made during that, that period. And I wish that they would have gotten a little bit more notice, but that I think that's just another documentary. Somebody needs to put that together because all of Manitou's stories are riveting. And then his admitting like i'm just a bit player in my own life story is quite a a big thing to say i've been meaning to write something book length about about that period of hopper's life this as you say there's so many amazing stories this like the one that's not in the film but like the the vim vendors told me once was that uh hopper came straight from the set of apocalypse now to shoot the american friend that he was wearing the clothes that he wears in in apocalypse now uh when he arrived at like at the airport in Germany, and I think it was in Hamburg, had malaria and had to sort of have a have a week to recover and to dry out, and then like he was good to go after that. This idea that those two films that that he was essentially living those realities, partly because of the things that were in his system at the time, but just that like you know it's it's like where where does the line between method actor and somebody who doesn't really have a grip on reality where's where is that line and and what does that mean for for a person's sanity? What does it mean for their work? pretty compelling i would say if people are interested in the last movie that actually watching along for the ride and then alex cox's scene missing those are the essential things i would say that the american dreamer is just kind of a nice companion piece but it's not nearly i mean the last movie is almost a footnote inside of the american dreamer and just kind of shows that headspace that we were talking about in that interim time while he's putting off doing his work because there are other things that aren't covered in there like the idea of Hodorowski coming in and doing another cut of the film the idea of you know some of the struggles that he had the idea of what he ends up the whole fight with him and Lou Wasserman so that is really crucial to the story of the last movie whereas him getting butt massages from uh, 20 girls, nubile, half-dressed women, is not necessarily... He's, it's not Dennis Hopper. It's not a documentary, even though it's kind of positioned like a documentary. 
I hate to psychoanalyze from my couch here, but it feels like it's Hopper invites it with how much there is this overlap between his personal and his creative life. How much something like American Dreamer represents self-loathing, loathing, because if he can't deal with being the second coming of cinema and everything that's expected of him, then you know he makes himself a monster and a beast and denies it all through his antics and gets to back out the back door. He becomes the enfant terrible. There's a lot of validity in that in that interpretation. That feels right to me. So before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Nick. Ben, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, I am enjoying a little holiday after just coming off working on uh, Season 7 of Wentworth. If anybody out there is paying attention to Australian women's prison drama series, you want to check that out when it hits the airwaves next year. And that's about it at the moment. I'm trying to set up uh, doing another film with a, a friend of mine. We made a film two years ago, a little micro-budget uh, comedy feminist noir called Trench, which will hopefully be hitting DVD and video on demand or whatever services uh, sometime this year. I'll be sure to let you know when that appears into the world. And, uh, yeah, gearing up to try and shoot something else uh, next year. So yeah, I'm going to enjoy my brief holiday right now. <laughs> And I'm going to be touching base with you in a couple weeks here, uh, actually probably next week, to set up a time to talk about The Fifth Horseman is Fear, which uh, will be part of our Check Temper series. Um, Check Temper, which is the lowest rated stuff that we had on the, the podcast last year, but fuck it, I don't care. I'm going to do another one this year. You gotta, you gotta start. People need to know how amazing Czech cinema is. It's such, it is, I just stay here right now. It is one of the most, uh, incredible, incredible cinemas in the world. It's just so good. And it's funny, actually. My girlfriend was showing me, um, Danny DeVito's Matilda recently, which I'd never seen. And it felt so Czech. Like, it's, it is, it is, I would be very, very surprised to find out that Danny DeVito is not a huge fan of Czech cinema because that film was loaded with its weird, anarchic darkness <laughs> and nick how about you what's been keeping you busy lately well i have my day job i i run the talk house the film section of talk house where lots of amazing filmmakers write about all kinds of stuff including uh alex ross perry wrote something on the american dreamer of, of course alex ross perry who uh was in uh la ultima pellicola playing a sort of hopper-esque character um sort of in this tribute to to the last movie or, or companion piece of sorts to the last movie uh, so i'm knee deep in that stuff um i was uh involved in the making of uh, a documentary about hal ashby which is based on my biography of him that came out almost 10 years ago so that movie is called hal and that's out in september through oscilloscope and it's excellent I'm not the director. I just helped make the film. So I'm, I'm, I have enough distance to say that it's excellent and people should go see that. Uh, uh, to. Go for it. Just say it's awesome no matter what your role. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, plug it away. Uh, you know, maybe 10 years from now, there'll be a, a Hopper book as well. Who knows? Nick, I have on my to-do list for today, and I'm not bullshitting you, I have on my to-do list to watch Hal so that I can start putting together an episode about that. You will not be disappointed. I'm really looking forward to it. I think, was there a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo? There was an Indiegogo a couple of years back, yeah. Okay, yeah, I gave to that. So uh, I've been aware of the project for a while, so I'm very excited to finally see the movie. And then, yeah, I love your book, so I'm really, uh, you know, it'll it'll be a really nice thing to have the two pieces. Oh, cool. Thanks. And yeah, you should write that Hopper book. Do that. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll add it to my to-do list as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. 
Mine is a lot easier. Mine's only going to take two hours to do. Yours might take a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I fear if you if you keep saying, "Oh man, I wish somebody would write a book about all this amazing stuff that I know," then maybe you should write the book. I really want to. It's I've been don't have kids, people. If you want to write a lot of books, it's, <laughs> doesn't, the two don't go very well together. I love my kid. I fortunately, apparently, slightly more than I love writing books. So that's why it's been taking so long. Oh, I'm I'm child free and still trying to write my book on cannibalism in cinema. So let's see who gets there first. Okay. <laughs> hey, no, it's the 21st century now where we we, we procrastinate without uh, a feeding off of others, unless it's actual feeding because cannibalism is acceptable. Thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. Please rate and review the show. I'm tired of looking at the current uh, reviews out there that are just talking about how anti-Trump the uh, podcast is. We all know that. I could write a review that praises you for being anti-Trump. Thank you. I would appreciate that. And you can also go over to Patreon and make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. You know, and the thing about iTunes reviews, they're free. You don't have to do anything. So just write. Yeah, there you go. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection boo take over the world, man.
gone to Louisiana. I'm going to Louisiana, that's cross the line. You know, I'm going to Louisiana, that's cross the line. I'll be seldom seen, and you know I'll be hard to find. show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.